Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, have you seen The Flash yet? I haven't. Are you going to see The Flash? I probably will. I've got to see a bit of old Michael Keaton Batman. I can't resist. They got me good. Yeah, it's good. I, I keep reading the promotional interviews for this that Michael Shannon's doing, where he compares his role to that of an action figure, and that he didn't really enjoy the, <laughs> making the film that much, and I think that's pretty baller as it goes. Um, but yeah, if you want to see Michael Keaton as a Dark Souls summon in a DC superhero <laughs> film, then it will sort you right out. So yeah, a bit of a light film-related banter there to kick things off. <laughs> good. <laughs> we have a, um, a Final Fantasy episode this week, and you have been playing 16 quite a lot in the background. So how's that been treated? Yeah, it's been fun. I, f- I felt a bit guilty about it, to be honest, because you being a big Final Fantasy head, it's kind of wrong that I get to play it for work-related issues. <laughs> and the whole time I was like, should I even say, should I just lie and say I haven't played it? <laughs> but then I'm like, this is the beginning of a Curb Your Enthusiasm-style confusion or miscommunication, so let's not do that. I try not to lie, tell white lies to my friends, even if I think it's to spare their feelings. <laughs> well, it's very considerate of you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, yes, we thought it was about time we did a Final Fantasy episode of this podcast because it's a subject that's close to my heart. I don't consider myself like a true authority on this series or anything, but I've got a reasonably deep knowledge of it more broadly there's a bunch of games in the series that i would consider myself an authority on in some ways i think final fantasy is best thought of as like a meta series and each game is kind of its own universe own set of mechanics Mm. that sort of thing there is a fandom that goes around with each game in a way that's very specific to this series versus other series individual meme economy yeah the ff10 meme economy is in great health at the moment but the um there is no real ff12 meme economy because the characters in that one are not as memorable and um the game isn't as strange and funny so uh, there's at least one person in the world who's running around shouting bash lives there'll be a a, there'll be a facebook account called bash posting or something like that (laughs) yeah lots of um (laughs) lots of shit posts and yeah other um dubious content so yes final fantasy it's interesting one to dig into so the series starts in the late 80s it's created by Hironobu Sakaguchi, who is basically like a first-time game developer who joins this company, Square, because he doesn't think he can get a role at any of the bigger companies, because he's a student at the same time that he's working there. As a result, it takes him years and years to finish his studies at uh, at university. I should say, actually, that um, a major source here is the uh, Edge um, Final Fantasy piece that Simon Parkin wrote covering the making mm. of the entire series. There's... There are so many good nuggets in that that I don't think we'll reveal before that piece that I'll, I will drop here. So I wanted to cite that as a source up front, um, Ooh, just so you don't a scattering just, of nuggets. <laughs> just so you don't think I've like flown to Square Enix and done all this research myself. I haven't. I'll be honest. I like that. <laughs> so in the in the wake of the release of uh, Dragon Quest on the NES, they make Final Fantasy this RPG that is is quite beautiful looking for the time. It's got a bit of cinematic intent behind it like the first kind of like menu screen you get you see a silhouette of the heroes it tries to create a little bit of maybe a little bit more storytelling versus dragon quest but honestly it's more like a collection of mechanics and a world built from the art of uh, yoshitaka amano and uh, the music of nobu uematsu apologies my terrible pronunciation here but basically the series becomes like a big success and while the story is that it kind of saved Square Final Fantasy, which is which is pretty much true, they'd never had a hit before this. It's a snowballing success, really, and it become bigger over time. So mm. um, you have like a second game, which has more experimental class-based mechanics. 
you have a third game which pushes the the class stuff even further and then you get to the fourth game which uh, is on the snares and that's when there's like a major jump in what they can achieve with the the characters and the world um, not necessarily the game mechanics final fantasy 4 is not a particularly experimental game when it comes to the japanese rpg gameplay mechanics it's pretty straightforward but what sakaguchi became kind of obsessed with was the idea of telling a story that could get people excited and he my understanding from the edge piece is that he worked with the editor of shonen jump at the time to work out how to tell stories because shonen jump apparently used to have this video game section every week this uh, weekly manga anthology what he would basically do was he would look at dragon quest always getting the spot and he went how do i get final fantasy this spot and literally went to the editor to ask him and the editor coached him through how you tell a great story that pulls out the characters really? and makes a character center stage and things like that. And so, yeah, that means it becomes story becomes incredibly important in Final Fantasy IV. Um, the art looks tons better. They, they are always nice looking games, but obviously, as the tech becomes more sophisticated, Amano's art he will produce around like thirty to forty pieces for the first six games. His art is very like it's very dreamy and. It's fine art, really. It does. There's no other video game art that looks like it. It's quite. It's such a specific, dazzling style. But obviously, you do need technology to bring more of that life out of it. With five, they decide to focus more on gameplay mechanics rather than story, knowing that four was more about story. And so, five is one of the better received games in terms of how it lets you shape your different characters, um, how, how how you craft those characters, and. Mm you know build it around your playing style six however swings things back around to being more focused on the story you have this really rich cast of characters who are all intended to basically be protagonists themselves and so you can switch perspectives throughout the story and then have each one basically be substantial enough to kind of carry the game on their own and then it kind of builds this grand ensemble piece the story is even more sort of like operatic and and twisty and you see the sophistication building over time with how they're um how they're telling stories and it's a much it's a much more pronounced part of this series than it is a part of other Japanese RPGs, and that seems to be part of why it kind of gets under people's skin. But of course, the other key thing here, Matthew, sorry to be um, rambling on here. No, no, this is good. Is that with every single game, this is a great story that Simon puts in his piece from Sakaguchi, that when they would complete a Final Fantasy project, they would basically, as a, as a ritual, the whole team would get together, watch the ending of the game, and then the next day, come in with like um everyone with like a pen and paper they start coming up with the the universe and the game for the the next installment so really are starting from scratch every single time there's no easy wow yeah no easy way to do that and then okay just to kind of fast forward to the next few, few bits then final fantasy 7 comes along square makes this bold decision to switch from nintendo to sony because they decided they needed a cd-rom to achieve all of their storytelling ambitions and so they would have to staff up massively find people who could actually build 3d graphics for them um umatsu was happy because he could finally do like orchestral music and uh, it was kind of like a one-to-one um with the cd-rom of like what he wanted the music to sound like and what it could sound like and this also marks the first time that final fantasy really cracks the west so seven becomes an enormous success on ps1 obviously sony puts a massive amount of um of marketing uh, budget behind the game so it becomes like a much bigger deal than it ever was before and of course seven is the first one to launch in europe this kicks off what is largely described as the golden age of the series so some people might disagree so you have eight and nine after this developed by different teams nine is a sakaguchi game and eight is uh, a katase game i believe another key figure in the creation of the series when you get to the ps2 era you have 10 which very much feels like it's in the mold of i would say seven and eight and then 
You also have Eleven, the first MMO they do, which I've never played. I was sad I didn't get to play at the time, but now I realise it would have just been a time sink. And, and I was already not doing a great job at like college and stuff, but having an MMO would have just completely destroyed me, especially if it's set the Final <laughs> Fantasy universe. Oh, he's having a right MMO. <laughs> You get to 12, which is arguably the most mechanically sophisticated entry of the whole series, or, you know, certainly the the more modern games, although I don't know if you could call 2006 modern anymore, <laughs> doesn't really feel like it. And then the series enters what some might call a bit of a dark age, I'm not sure that's entirely true. So you get 13, which launches on PS3 and 360 in 2009-2010. This is long-awaited. You get the feeling it took them a lot longer than they thought it would to make. It was a really big undertaking. It was more polarizing than Final Fantasy had been previously, yet introduces the stagger mechanic, which many subsequent Final Fantasy games seem to be using now, including 16 and 7 remakes, so quite a pivotal entry, I think. That has a few sequels. They launch um, a second MMO, 14. It's a complete disaster, so they basically kind of redo development on that MMO, and it becomes a Realm Reborn, which is very well received. It's arguably, I think it is, like, by financially the most successful final fantasy ever made now many years passed between 13 and 15 and um, so the, the single player installments 15 comes along built out of the bones of versus 13 a long gestating companion title to ff13 and um 15 i think is like it's pretty well received it's not a particularly deep rpg but it does um chart a course for the future it's the first real-time combat game they make and it's and i think crucially it feels like final fantasy it sounds like final fantasy it has all of the, I think it has all of the right things in the right place, even if it feels like it didn't fe- reach its full potential. Mm. Then we get to 16, where basically the um, the business unit at Square Enix is behind 14. <laughs> Essentially, uh, my speculation is they seem to earn the right to basically make the next single player numbered instalment. You know, it seems like they are, they have a, you know, there's like a good head on the shoulders of Yoshida, the um, the producer of this mm-hmm. game and the director of FF14 around Reborn. So there's um, a brief potted history there, Matthew. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that brief really, but you know, crammed it into about eight minutes. Matthew, what is your personal history of Final Fantasy? Where do you intersect with any of that timeline, if, if at all? Mostly from the sidelines being very envious. Uh, I was a very happy Nintendo gamer through my teenage years, most of my childhood. But the one thing that I really coveted on PlayStation was Final Fantasy. And as like an avid reader of Games Master, you know, the most beautiful covers every year would be the Final Fantasy covers because what they were doing technologically was so far beyond everyone else. You know, you'd see these at the time what you would call like photorealistic faces on the on from the the FMV sequences just thinking like oh wow like nothing nothing looks like that on N64 and we famously rented a PlayStation and Final Fantasy without a memory card I won't we go over that again you can hear me telling that story 15 times across the history <laughs> of this podcast I, I love you saying famously as well famously well famously within the context the bubble the echo chamber of this little podcast <laughs> um, That's true. you know like the famous boys across the river. They're not actually famous. <laughs> They're not actually boys across the river. We established that one of them drowned. Um, and like it's a repressed memory of yours, a very dark memory, Matthew. So sinister stuff. Um, so yeah, it, it was kind of frustration at, at wanting these things. Not really having a, a, a... I didn't really absorb them by osmosis through friends either. Because most of my close friends were Nintendo owners. Like we all had N64s at secondary school, so I don't really remember there being like a big Final Fantasy head in the group. I mean, probably that person for me is my brother Alex, who was really into Final Fantasy. I remember him playing 
them because we didn't have a PlayStation. He played them on PC, so we had like Final Fantasy VII and definitely VIII on PC. Weirdly though, for something that I did cover, I never really went back and like filled in those those gaps. I've I've played like chunks of seven and eight over the years. I've not finished either. Professionally, like the first time I properly encountered it from like having to cover it for work was was Final Fantasy fifteen on official Xbox, which we went quite heavy on and we did did quite a lot of coverage of and I, I played all that that all the way through and enjoyed it and actually i tell like i had final fantasy 12 on my slim playstation in fact i think i bought it with my playstation 2 slim because there was a gorgeous edge cover or like edge really went to bat for it and said it was super sophisticated so that's what kind of got me on board um so i have played that one and then i played through 10 with Catherine. Catherine's a big big into final fantasy I think we started playing through 13 as well, but I think we only made it about halfway through. Halfway through part one of three. I thought that was a very long and boring way of saying, I probably have a patchy relationship with Final Fantasy, but I'm super interested in it and its place in the landscape and kind of what it signified throughout the years. There was a lot of time Final Fantasy meant the cutting edge, Hmm. particularly in the PlayStation years. They would basically show you the best games could be, and maybe that that has kind of changed over the years, or they've they've struggled to kind of hold on to that position. But it's been interesting to see them wrestle with with that sort of legacy, I guess. Yeah, what's interesting in reading the history of the about SquareSoft and and the development of the series is how the culture there changes from very much a bunch of students just working together to make things happen to becoming more of a professional company and Mm. it's weird because there's you know final fantasy the original released in 1987 and sakaguchi is ousted by the early noughties and it seems like and that's obviously due to the failure of final fantasy spirits within the film that lost like 90 million dollars or something (laughs) deservedly so (laughs) well yeah it's probably the amount that like babylon lost but um it's not like they're chucking damien chazelle out of hollywood is it um but yeah so uh, it's uh it's interesting because that that period of time isn't really that long that's about as long as i've been working full-time you know um, right and that's and but like you realize the amount that happened in that time from the recent release of final fantasy to you know final fantasy 10 releasing it covers that entire period of time so it's you know a, a, an enormous like enormous evolution a fast evolution as well for the series like uh, people pointed out the gap between ff7 and ff10 it's four years but those games don't really look four years apart you know at least to to most people shepherded the series through one of two very difficult sort of generational leaps i think Mm. the second one is like a a little bit more harder to pin down but it's the natural like evolution of tech and graphics and where we're going that like everyone now seems to be sort of wrestling with you can spend an infinite amount of money making your game infinitely pretty and like where where do you draw the line i guess is the question now where maybe that that shift has been harder to navigate for the series but yeah i'm for for, you know the leap from snes to playstation one i mean it's unreal what they did yeah absolutely and then even from ps1 to well even throughout the ps1 era that the the very simple polygonal models of seven compared to how you know, um, Zidane looks in nine. They're just, you yeah. know, they. You don't have that difference between what the, the characters look like in battle and what they look like, like on the world map. It's all the same, which is yeah, yeah. They yeah. just they really got to grips with that tech, you know. I so. just, I just, I just feel the leap from PS one to PS two wasn't quite as scary or difficult as like the leap from PS two to PS three. That's 
definitely true because HD just seems to bring its own challenges. Yeah. I also got the impression that the tools they built to make FF13 were maybe quite complicated or expensive or something like that because they only use them, I think, for those three games and then they're basically like done after that and now i think they're making games in unreal engine i think i mean maybe 16 isn't but i'm pretty sure seven uh seven remake is so the other thing that's interesting with final fantasy is so my history is that i had a friend who had ff7 i remember in the late 90s going around his house and he was in wall market wandering around i was like oh what was that but at the time i was playing a lot of like rts games and star wars games so it wasn't totally one over by the idea of playing a Japanese RPG and then when the PS2 came along though I was I, I was just like fixated on the idea I have to have a PS2 and so it was like the early days of the PS2 were were super cool because it was quite a quiet launch but there was so much like big stuff about to happen so GTA 3 about to become 3D obviously Gran Turismo 3 which was um, a huge deal because that was a massive step up in like you know how how pretty you could make a car look or how close to real life you could make a car look and then you had things like Metal Gear Solid 2 on the horizon and Final Fantasy 10 was one of those two where there were these like mega amazing looking games just around the corner and I think that that probably sold the PS2 as much as like the idea of having a DVD player did there's the idea mm. that all these things are about to happen Devil May Cry and so yes and so 10 was 10 was one of those i think i'd I'd seen just a trailer for it i was like wow i have to i have to get another ground floor of that and i remember (laughs) buying the issue of official playstation 2 magazine that had the demo disc it has this really close-up image of uh, yuna's face from the game so you have these um she has like uh i can't remember what the is it like something chromia where you have like two heterochromia something like that we have two separate david bowie eyes (laughs) (laughs) yeah david bowie eyes yes and so I played that demo, and despite the shonky voice acting, I was like, I can't believe how beautiful this looks on my tiny um, TV VHS combi. Um, I and remember so, yeah. I was playing that as well, and that was my only interaction with Ten until I played it with Catherine. Was like watching him play that OPM demo, and it's like the opening of the game, right? Yeah, you get the opening of the game, then it cuts forward to Besaid Island with a few little battles. And that's, yeah, yeah, it's like two bits. Yeah, yeah, it looked it looked pretty amazing. Tropical world, something like you hadn't seen before, something that only really felt like it existed in video games. It was really, really different visually from what other Final Fantasy games were doing at the time had had been doing previously um, to that, and that kind of set me off down a path of hovering up the PS One games, going into like uh, pre owned shops and picking like eight, picking eight up and seven up and later nine, and just you know investigating the history of this series. I had a friend um, who used to live across the road who had bought a Final Fantasy special issue that had uh, had an eight demo with it and then like a complete history of the series. And I just like said, can I have that so I can read about what happened in this series before seven? I became like totally fixated on it when I was uh, in my late teens, basically. Right. And the funny, the funny thing is, right, you say that there weren't any Final Fantasy heads in your little group, right? I didn't really know many at all. I think I knew two people who liked Final Fantasy alongside me at my school. But it was not like you know gta vice city you would not find the same amount of people playing that as they were playing vice city it was like it was it did always seem to me like it was more niche here than it maybe was in north america you know just yeah it's like so much of my relationship was through games master and a lot of its references were instantly absorbed particularly final fantasy 7 like there were always jokes about like characters in that game or like you know the big dramatic beats of that game you know, Sephiroth became this like instant sort of shorthand for good villain. So it felt very present, like in my reading material. 
the, the people I know who do love these games, like my peers of a similar age, you know, you and some of the people I work with, whenever they talk about your relationship with them, it does sometimes sound like a very, like, private, intense relationship you had. Like, someone who basically, like, locked themselves in their bedroom, played 100 hours, remembers it all in this, like, granular detail, you know, can talk about the dramatic lead-up to fighting an ultimate weapon in Final Fantasy VIII, or remembers a very specific sound effect or whatever. It, 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 almost because it didn't have, like, an outlet, and it wasn't discussed more openly, it was allowed to kind of sort of seep in on a deeper level in some weird way. Yeah, I think I get what you mean there. The other weird thing I think about this, and I, I definitely have floated this theory to you before, is I think that there's, to me... It seemed like there wasn't really a mainstream appreciation of anime or manga in the UK prior to around the late 90s when Pokemon launched in the UK. I feel like that that I know there was like a, there was a sort of a you know there were VHSs and of like Akira and stuff like that and there was a, an underground interest in this stuff but I feel like that kind of like wave crashed a bit sooner in the US when I think mm. people in the mid 90s were watching Dragon Ball Z and stuff and that that didn't happen here is my understanding like the Pokemon was the first time I really noticed this stuff hitting the mainstream and you know from there it did snowball for sure but Final Fantasy weirdly a, a series that feels you know we talked about the Shonen Jump connection there which feels like very much like it's inspired by at least like archetypes or different types of stories or you know imagery final fantasy 7 kind of brings that here before the things that inspired it or helped to inform it actually became mainstream here so in some ways i think that was some people's first connection with this kind of like these kind of character designs or this kind of world and that sort of thing so Mm. i think that maybe added to its novelty when it launched here that there wasn't it just wasn't anything else like it that was mm. in that was any, anywhere close to mainstream and yet suddenly the most you know the most important game on the biggest selling console was this game final fantasy 7 mm. and that that i think is quite an interesting kind of like i, I guess like cultural reverse engineering um, ff7 from that when you didn't have lows to compare it to at the time in the uk it's, it's quite interesting i think so but that's certainly my perception people who are older than me might disagree i know they like super play used to have um like an anime section and stuff like that but i really do get the impression that this was not this was not like widely appreciated at the time in the uk yeah i mean more there's more of an audience for it in the us you know the thing with superplay and n64 though like i remember it was like will overton's mag persona that he was like the jrpg guy he only even had the the alter ego kind of wizard alter ego who was kind of obsessed with these games so it was kind of still sort of um kind of secluded through that it was Mm. represented but almost as a yeah here's that genre that this one weird guy likes (laughs) yeah and then the anime coverage was a bit like that too it was very much like it seemed like it was more of a a direct order a vhs for 20 quid kind of like underground thing you know at the back of a games mag there's like enough of a venn diagram crossover to make it worthwhile including but it isn't like an eclipse <laughs> no and then a lot of these games you know a lot of japanese rpgs prior to final fantasy 7 just simply don't make it here either it's uh you know mm. it's a genre that is obviously thriving in japan and you know there's there are more of them in the u.s but there are very very few of them in europe so that's another it key was thing frustrated that... being a being a legit fan of like another genre when of another series in this genre when like ff was exploding you know like if you were a big shining head like ash Tay. 
if this was kind of like, oh man, there's this other thing. This other thing could be just as big if more people played it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's a good that's a good question to ask, Matthew. Is why do you think Final Fantasy has persisted as a series, and why has it succeeded where the Japanese RPGs have not? I think my theory around this is it's always just looked the part a bit more than some of these other games, like its contemporaries. It's always just had that edge in terms of visuals and. Maybe, you know, at least maybe music as well. Uh, people might disagree yeah, that one was yeah. maybe more subjective. But certainly it just felt like the, you know, having the change of worlds each time just meant these games could freshly dazzle you each time. And the progression yeah. was so quick, even between like four and six, the pixel art, the quality of it. It feels like the amount of people making it swells massively during that SNES era. Mm. And then, yeah, you get to the PS1 days and then suddenly it is like a, it is cutting edge visually in in that kind of like 3d style so it sort of defines the look of the japanese rpg for that generation as well so i think that's part of it it's always been slightly ahead on the visual side and you know maybe mechanically as well but what do you think i'd put it down to the sort of simple anthology sort of structure of it that you can jump in anywhere they work really hard to sort of establish their world and characters as, as individual games so you know they they're just I don't know. It's it's the kind of craft that goes into just any any good standalone story. You know, it's the difference between the couple of breakout fantasy novels that break into the mainstream because they have that clarity, I guess, compared to the the masses of tomes that when you go into any bookshop, you're like, well, I'm I'm sure they're good, but I'm never touching those. You know, it's the difference between a Game of Thrones and a well, any a series I can't name because I just walk past them in the bookshop which is kind of like the relationship between Final Fantasy and a lot of other JRPGs. I think other JRPGs as well sometimes confuse the fact that because they are mechanically complicated in terms of being like very numbers driven and based on this sort of statistical systems, they can be a little bit more narratively complicated or like have very, very dense lore, super, conf- you know, super confusing kind of setups or endless sequels and you have to have played the previous entries in the series. I think Final Fantasy the ones I've played are very well judged in that the stories are good, but they're not like so complicated you can't get your head around them in the same way that the mechanics are just satisfying, but they're not like... I, my read isn't that they're the most mechanically sophisticated of JRPGs. And it, it just sort of... It, there's just something a bit kind of like the middle ground, but but doing it brilliantly there. That kind of makes these things work, which paired with the amazing production values just makes that even easier to swallow and enjoy. So, I mean, when you look at that and, and like even like Dragon Quest is just Dragon Quest is instantly a little bit like nerdier looking, a little bit weirder looking, a little bit harder to kind of get into. Like the difference between a slime and a, a Final Fantasy hero being the face of their game and a fucking slime being the face of Dragon Quest is just <laughs> sort of says it all, really. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The sophistication thing is interesting because it really does vary between games. So yeah, oh um, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know that's being super broad, but I, I'm basically going on what I've played. Like I've never been like, oh my god, this is really out there, and I'm losing myself in a world of statistical possibilities but maybe i've played yeah. the wrong ones <laughs> well no i think the edges do soften a bit over time as well because the mm. the second game is has like an activity based progression system where right. the more you do a certain thing the more you level up in that area which was I, I i get the impression that was quite revolutionary at the time and then three is the first one that brings in like a quite a complex job system as well which is you know yeah. like a class system and so uh, but then like over time while that some of that stuff persists it's like 
I mean, I will say when I I had to like play the Final Fantasy one and two for um for review on PSP when I was a staff writer, I couldn't get over how hard they were. They were so difficult. I was just like, mm. I'm completely out of my element here, and I completely cop to. I've got good knowledge of three because I played through basically the entirety of three on DS minus the end boss, which I couldn't do. Um, but uh, one and two, I, I'm not an authority on, and I just found them so fucking hard. I played each of them for about 15 hours and just <laughs> found myself making tiny amounts of progress, but. I think when they, as they go and as it grows bigger, they don't necessarily become simpler, but they definitely like work harder to teach you how all their different systems work without being too cruel about how they do that. So there's a bit yeah. of that that goes on. And, you know, as they become more mainstream, I mean, you know, 16 has an option for you to play it as in story mode. And there's also an action mode as well, which, you know, story mode obviously is about like letting you get through the battles easily. Action mode is about letting you play it a bit more as so- that. Devil yeah. May Cry infused action, real time action experience, you know. So yeah, S- that's true. I Sixteen think. has a re- uh, like a real chip on its shoulder though about its own genre. I think in terms of their desire to make it a more accessible, like more popular, more wa- mainstream, more widespread game. But at the same time, their fear of like alienating people who still associate Final Fantasy with like turn based games and the way they kind of wrestle with that by basically having options to sort of negate all the combat challenge if you should wish and just enjoy literally just enjoy the story of the thing i think it's quite interesting like i feel like there's been a lot of like long conversations into into the night about what that what they need to do with final fantasy and what it should be and it's always interesting to see where they land with any individual game yeah i think what's interesting about this series is that you know, it's not surprising they have an identity crisis about the series every five or six years because the entire series is built around having an identity crisis. Right, you know, yeah. if you're going to change the mechanics, the world, and the characters every single time, what you're going to have to do every single time is ask yourself what are the things that remain consistent between these games. And you know, in some ways, that's a that's an unanswerable question because you know there are obviously the iconography is consistent the enemies the enemy types recur over and over again you know mm. certainly the and post 7 um pretty boys are always a key part of the mix in these games that's definitely like in there as well and um if numura is doing the character designs buckles and uh, yeah, that's a key <laughs> part of it so you know it's but it's what you keep and what you leave behind is is a really difficult thing to answer and i think it is kind of amazing they've managed to to sort of thread that over time but now because games are so expensive it feels like the stakes are even higher than ever when they're doing that i suppose so mm. i'm not i'm not too surprised that they've been wrestling with this okay so matthew let's talk about final fantasy 16 because i've played through the demo you have played a lot more than just the demo the game is out by the time people are listening to this and you know it's interesting to hear that you've been giving this a proper go so mm-hmm. I know there's like a work aspect to that a little bit, but yeah. how has it been treating you? Because I don't have this super attachment to past Final Fantasy. I think I can, you know, I, I haven't got like a huge amount riding on this being like amazing. So maybe I kind of like approached it with a slightly kind of detached sort of just interest of like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what they've done next. I, I think it's a really good bit of world construction, character development and storytelling. Like I, I think the actual lore of the thing and the tone of the thing and it it's been said a lot of times this draws a lot from like game of thrones in that it's a bit more grounded it's a bit more brutal you know it's a little bit more i guess like the sort of you know the 
in video game terms like the witcher in terms of it's it's about like warring nations and quite like human problems but with this sort of super you know this supernatural element of these sort of giant godlike summons that that each nation can kind of summon feels like a bit of a crude sort of nuke analogy basically that everyone has this technology which lets them kind of compete on the world stage that I'm all really I'm really interested in and like how they spend time to kind of flesh that world out and like bed you into it and introduce all the characters that feels like a a huge improvement over Final Fantasy 15 where my big problem was I just didn't really understand the fucking story or the world at all and you had to sort of absorb this huge mixed media project to have like any kind of foothold in that world i i liked what the game was i liked the minute to minute what i was doing and i liked the characters a lot but i thought the story in 15 was like a huge huge miss and this feels like whatever else they do someone has said this has to be super coherent after final fantasy 15 and they've absolutely done that they've nailed that like it's it's a it's a good story well told i think my problem with it is that by boiling it down to this Devil May Cry style combat system, we basically realise why people don't make 50 hour Devil May Cry games because right. it's just not enough to sustain you. And outside of like the big story beats where it's introducing like new enemies and there are mini bosses and the bosses which are amazing, I actually found like I didn't find the combat system particularly fit for purpose in terms of like the open world stuff. Or like the wider area stuff. Like every, every fight outside of the big battles in the story feels exactly the same. And it just feels like I am so powerful and this combat system has like nothing to do. Where Devil May Cry, every fight will challenge you in some way. You know, it never just gives you... Or it maybe gives you a couple of gimmies like across, across 10 hours. But this is like 30 hours of combat I didn't have to engage with and 20 hours that I did. I love those 20 hours. But those 30 hours are like, it's a bit of a, it's, it's, it's kind of a little bit rough. <laughs> interesting. It's my take. That's, yeah, that is interesting. It's sort of hearing your take on it behind the scenes where you were saying to me like it, <laughs> it might be like an edge six. I don't know if you want to keep that in the podcast. <laughs> no, but... not like, I, you know, it, it's interesting how you sort of, if I was reviewing it for Edge, I might give it a seven. Like, the good stuff in it is is really good, and I really liked it. Like, that's, you know, that's that's the important thing. It's like, when it's doing it right, and it's all kicking off, you're like, oh, I actually love a lot of this. You know, like, I really like these villains. Um, it's got great villains. And there's there's so many of them that you really look forward to bringing them down. And when you fight them, a lot of the boss battles are like these multi-stage things because most of the characters are these dominants and can turn into like gods. You're like, well, I know that at some point this person's probably going to turn into like some massive god and then the whole fight's going to change. And they actually really deliver on that promise. Yeah. Like when they said Platinum were involved with this, I wouldn't be surprised if they were involved in some of those late phase bits of the boss battles because it does go very god in space like multiple times throughout right like there's some god of the war style like fighting you know your man-sized fighting a thing that's like the size of a planet or whatever like it, it, it really delivers that spectacle it's just the problem is most of the game is fighting goblins plants or spiders which are just like mush, like they don't they don't do anything. Basically, if they don't have a stagger bar, and I think the demo which you've played introduces the stagger mechanic. It does. If they don't have the stagger bar, you can just button mash, 
And most yeah. things don't have a stagger bar, I guess is my problem. It's funny because the stagger mechanic, like I say, is from FF13. It's a, yeah. it's That's where that, that started. And both 7 Remake and 16 have it now. And it's interesting because 13 is so widely you know seems to be widely derided by people as a as like a weak point in the series and yet it has been quite pivotal in defining yeah. the modern mechanics of the series but the reason it's a great creation is that it it turns it gives you um you know peaks in the com- in an rpg combat system so you're not just like mashing the same commands over and over again there is an element of strategy to it and there yeah. is a, a there is like a rush moment when you can do more damage and then they can like do a cool animation where the enemy sort of like collapses, falls down, gives you that window to smash them up. It creates like it gets your pulse racing in a Japanese RPG battle. Yeah. So it's it is a it is a great mechanic, I think. So I see your point about why that would make some of the bosses more exciting than the regular enemies. Also, I think like you sort of hinted at this, Matthew, there with the platinum thing, but it's the it's the staging with the bosses, especially the mm. demo that I thought was great. So when that dragoon guy jumps off of the castle to attack you in the demo right at the start of the game, um, that ruled. That was amazing, and the the music goes really hard. This this game has got so many good like villain entrances. It's just, it's right. really good at that. That stuff is so polished. Yeah, and like I react so positively to it, where you're like, oh, I wish I loved every bit of this game because this stuff is so on my wavelength. Do you know what it actually reminds me of more than anything? It's actually Yakuza. All right, yeah. In that, in Yakuza, you have like base level fights, which are basically nothing. But when you get into like the more story missions, that's where you have like the boss fight, which will have like the wild quick time events. That's where it has Kiryu punching a lion, the stuff that you like remember. And you don't mind it. You know, I, I guess I have a similar relationship with like the minute to minute just plodding around the world, fighting the same low level threats. It's kind mm. of like how I feel after 30 hours of a Yakuza game. Like, I can only go so far with it. You know, it's just like, there's there's not enough sophistication in these everyday fights to kind of hold the attention. Yeah, it's like weirdly, like, more like that as a, as a kind of action RPG than it probably is any other game I've played. Yeah, I can see that. I think it, it makes a really good first impression, the game. I think, like you say, the storytelling is super coherent. Weirdly, the story is more similar to 15 than people have pointed out. It's about... Right. Ally, these you know one king t- kingdom that's the ally of another betraying one of those kingdoms and then you know like basically like trying to wipe out the royal family of that kingdom and then one person escaping and you know and sort of like or one person enduring and and then kind of like plotting to bring the whole thing down like that's that part of it is quite similar to 15 and then yeah. there are other there are other similarities to 15 so a key part of the combat is you can do a sort of like teleport charge attack, which is quite similar to what Noctis can do in FF15. Yeah. Just that whacking triangle to smash towards an enemy and perform a melee attack. That is a key part of the mix here for sure. It's a much more sophisticated real-time combat system, it feels like to me, than 15 had. So it has has more depth to it, more progression, more ways it can sort of change. Yeah. Um, does it have um, any party mechanics in it, Matthew? No. Oh, really? That is... That's quite bold because yeah, like did have the, those. The, the the characters are all AI controlled. You don't and you don't give them any instruction. The only one you can give any instruction to is Torgal, the dog, right. who <laughs> is kind of a piece of shit in combat. Um, <laughs> he's never once done anything where I've been like, "Great, that was cool, Torgal. Thanks, Torgal." Um, <laughs> My guy, Torgal. It is super streamlined, both on that front and also like the equipment front. In what I've played so far, it has been 
an extremely linear progression through like my sword and my armor i just upgrade to the next thing with the two higher stats there's no kind of like elemental strength or weakness system in this game or anything like that it's just raw combat power what customization there is is like entirely in the icons you have equipped they each have like a couple of moves for variations that you can pick from so for each icon that you're kind of allied to i guess you can have like two powerful moves from them and i think they've each got four to pick from you know your character build as it were is basically three icons each with two moves and from that 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 pool of six moves you can put together some quite interesting things each icon has a power that drastically changes one element of clive that teleport is the icon of fire kind of teleport but you know another one has a move that like pulls people towards you another one has like a, a very powerful block if you can time it properly another one can sort of stun people with lightning and th- those moves feel very like nero's arms in devil may cry 5 right right where like you have one of these big things equipped and it has like one big game-changing element to it and a couple mm. of them like neat gimmicks on the side is kind of the and you know given that this is mr devil may cry 5 on the combat system like that isn't a surprise and i've definitely gelled with it more as it's gone on and you get more of the icons it deals them out quite slowly there's long stretches between and and in the early game that means you just don't have many moves to play with which is maybe where some of that fatigue comes in having seen Catherine play final fantasy 7 remake i just felt like that had extra levels to it that this doesn't have a little bit more engagement a little bit more to think about with how it dealt with like other members of the party or like being being able to give instructions like I feel like people could have managed this combat system and another layer on top and that just hasn't really manifested that's really interesting yeah that's uh I suppose like the key thing will be how much you tune into the story and whether that carries you the distance so, yeah you know because it certainly feels like the uh, it makes such a good impression that demo I thought that demo yeah. was like a great a great idea for a bit of marketing because yeah. it gives you a save file so you can just keep playing it it is essentially the whole prologue. It's two plus hours of the game, which is, I don't think I've ever played a demo like that since the 90s, yeah. basically. It's, yeah, so I feel like the story investments can be key here, you know? Yeah, and, and like, I actually think where the demo like leaves you, that I think the initial setup of the game, like, it's a pretty good one. Hmm. You feel quite riled up. You know, you're like, yeah, I, I, I want to help this guy get what he wants. I think he's great in it. The, the, I think the voice actor behind Clive, I think he's called Ben Starr. Yeah. He really sells it. And it's like, a, I, I haven't heard him in other I don't know if he's done lots of other games, but it's not a voice like I'm particularly familiar with. It has a slightly different flavor to it. He has to sell some quite like gnarly stuff. And he does a really good job, like ac- across the board, actually. Like the heroes, you want them to win. The villains, you cannot wait to get them. Like it, it succeeds on that basic storytelling level of like, you know your motivations are super clear and you will want to kind of see it through for all my kind of problems with it i haven't quite finished it i'm like desperate to finish it the story doesn't quite go where you think it's going to go as well the core of it is great i think that's uh, that's exciting because I, I, the thing is right you, you can i think you can level at final fantasy that it doesn't it often bungles it when it comes to having a coherent story you know right where, where you understand what's going on at all times and that things are moving forwards and you understand why they're moving forwards and things like that. And I think Square Enix's localization generally is amazing. But I do agree there's something even more spectacular with this this one. Just it feels so, so well, so polished as a script. And yeah, the, the cast is just so strong. And yeah, it's, it just, yeah. It's, 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 it's also, quite funny 
though, because I don't know if the pool of like British video game voice actors is small or whatever, but like there's a lot of kind of oh I know this voice from somewhere with this game. Right. I don't know if you noticed this, but your your dad, the king, is hmm. Lucas Gray from Hitman. Oh, that that's where I know that voice. He even looks like Lucas Gray. <laughs> the last you know however many tens of hours I've been playing has been you know I'm constantly like. Oh, it's that fucking guy from that game. Oh, it's that guy from this. It's this guy from this. You can probably assume that Square Enix got cast the guy who played Lucas Gray, right? So there's probably a bit of that to it. But um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's that's interesting. The other thing is as well that I noted about it is that the art direction is a lot more muted than in other Final Fantasy games. Like I think it's going for maturity in a few different ways. That you know that comes from the very basic kind of like. There's a lot of swearing in it and blood, and it's very violent, you know, unusually so for Final Fantasy. It's quite strange to see the iconography of Final Fantasy summons and things like that amidst, like, you know, having, like, bits of summon, you know, chewed up and, you know, ripped up and stuff like that. That's quite strange to see that happening. (laughs) Or just generally, like, there's characters who obviously fuck in this game. There's, like, this quite... This, I've seen a couple of scenes where it's it's pretty horny, and these are games that are normally extremely chaste. Um, but this, but it also extends to the fact that the art direction is like it doesn't mind having characters who are dressed in like you know quite muted tones. It doesn't mind you know it, it, not everyone has to be wearing like bright colours and popping off the screen and looking like they could looking like they're trying to sell action figures or whatever. It's yeah, it feels it feels like consistency and like. And making the yeah making the world feel not necessarily kind of like a Western fantasy thing, but feeling like it can sit alongside something like Game of Thrones and look like it belongs a little bit. It's it's just re- it's just really interesting to see them resist some of the obvious hooks that Final Fantasy usually usually you know will always pull, and that's quite that's quite interesting as a project. I think. Do you, do you kind of agree with that? That there is a an attempt at maturity going on here that extends beyond yeah. swearing and blood and stuff. The political makeup of the world is quite confusing in in like a good way and the game like really revels in it um it introduces a mechanic where there's like a character you can go to who basically like break down what's going on in the world at any given time a lot of the politics they're not really what the story is about it's more to justify like why people are in certain places but if you care about that and you want to dive into that, like the game has a reason, you know, it will say like, well, this army pushed into this territory, which has driven these people down here, which is why this bloke's in this location at the moment. And that's why it makes sense that you'd be fighting him here when you might think he belongs here and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, maybe that isn't your cup of tea and you can just ignore that stuff. But I, I like that there is a sort of answer for everything. It has this like footnote system almost where you can pause any cutscene and then go into like a glossary for like everyone who's in that scene active time law isn't that what it's called yeah it's dumb but it's it's fucking great i absolutely love that it's just the opposite of what final fantasy 15 was where it was like that game's active time law is you have to go and buy a film called king's glaive (laughs) and watch it even then you won't understand it because it's made by our anime team which is mostly terrible well i think it's i think that was also just because they rushed 15 15 was like a really quick project to get that done that's why the game feels half complete i think whereas this one this one has had years for them to make it which i think it probably makes a difference to how the story's told you know i I remember in 15 fighting bosses where i was like i don't even know who this character is i don't know why they're opposed to me it doesn't make any sense but i I do take your point i I, I, about about the the general sort of tone of it and that's that's quite bold i think they have a bit of an out in that like at any moment this quite 
mundane, realistic world can explode into two giant titans. Like, if there are action figures, it would be the icons rather than the people, you know? And it, it, it has that mode too. But the way it, like, actually slips between them is very sophisticated. Like, a, you're never like, oh, this is silly compared to what else is going on. And, you know, without going into, like, what the story is about, I, I feel like the game is, is, is a little bit of a critique of petty human matters versus global devastation right right which feels like very of our time you know yeah. it's kind of about you've got like the war level of society and then you've got what what can we do as a species and the game is like very invested in that idea so actually having those two modes sort of suits that really well as well i love the idea as well of the um the summons being the kind of like representatives of kingdoms like these yeah like figures that god king figures basically that's a really great a great way yeah. to use summons um like the idea that yeah. like because people don't have any control over who these summons sort of awaken it you know if you are the the dominant of one of these things you're like the dominant until you're basically killed and then someone else becomes it and yeah. it's the idea that having this huge power has like perhaps elevated some people above where they should be or like it's put power in the hands of some like really unsavory people who have this gift that the whole culture around that is really really well done actually it's sort of um it's also interesting i think in that the there's a like a slight rejection of tradition in the i think the pitch of the game is something like the crystals have you know decided the future for us long enough or something like that and that's you know the crystals are part of the iconography going back to final fantasy like they are you know the original final fantasy they've always been a part of these games as sort of like you know the sort of sending you on your quest or something you're seeking out or something like that they are they're key iconography and so there's a little bit of rejection of that going on Ooh. i think as well so you know and that obviously if you think about how the game is is completely real time and you know you don't have party control and stuff like that it's yeah there's maybe a, a slight bit of that running through it as well of like this is Ooh. not meant to be the same thing you've played before it's not living in a marge to it it's trying to forge its own path so yeah, excited to play it in full, Matthew. I was yeah, I was really impressed by the demo, and um, mm. yes, um, sad to hear that the combat system doesn't necessarily hold up against well, normal it, enemies. It, it, I, I can see that happening based yeah. on my play, but yeah, it holds um, up. It's just not it's not made for low level mobs from the meat of the game, which is what it is. So yeah, it's built for one to one battles, isn't it? That's, yeah, well, that's, that's it, and yeah. those are great. Love them, you know. Mm. But yeah. Yeah, just like how that, like how you use dodges and how you use your different abilities and things like that. But I will say that, based on what I've played, having you know followed Square Enix's journey of making real time games from Kingdom Hearts through to FF15, they've gotten better at it over the years. Yeah, but it's nice to see them actually get to the point where the combat is almost best in class. Sometimes, you know, even if it is just in those one to one encounters. So. Yeah, I'm pleased to at least see they got there. Just because it seemed like for so long, no one could really agree that Kingdom Hearts was a great action game. No one really seemed to believe it, even though it, it did steadily get better as they went and that sort of thing. So, yes. Um, okay then, Matthew. So, this is like the one kind of question I wanted to ask you. I guess like an existential question about the series before we get into the list. So, do you think Final Fantasy like needs to be a real-time action game or an open-world game in order to maintain or grow its popularity these days? I ask this because... I think this, if there's one series that could get away with being turn-based still on a kind of like blockbuster level, Final Fantasy is the one that will sell anyway, and it's not necessarily a big deal, but I feel like they've maybe talked themselves into the idea that they have to have modern game mechanics in there, like real-time combat, in order to yeah. 
avoid seeming a bit fuddy-duddy-ish. But I don't know. Because we live in a world where Fire Emblem is really big and XCOM is really big, I don't think turn is correct to consider turn-based like an, an outdated mechanic. I think it's... It is there to, you know, to be refreshed like any other kind of gameplay mechanic. Yeah. But I was curious what you made of this side of things. When 16 is like at its real-time peak, I can see like what an asset it is for them to sell to the general like masses. Because you can put these like quite astonishing-looking things in the trailers. You're doing it. You know, it's just a better sell than like this is just a cutscene. But I don't know. I just think the story and world and characters trumple. I think if those things are good enough, people will play it. And they are good enough, you know, like, I, I, I don't know that there are many people who are like, I love Final Fantasy specifically because of what it is mechanically. I think there's, I, my personal theory is there's always been a little bit of, I, I will put up with like whatever it wants to do mechanically because I just want to be, I want to listen to this cool story. Mm. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's wrong. I don't know. No, I, th- I think that's accurate. I think yes. that there is a willingness to go along. I think you're right in that. There's, there's so many people doing cool things in turn-based space. I just think of how beloved Persona is. And just the huge buzz around that game. I don't know it's still relatively niche in the grand scheme of things, but it doesn't have to be old-fashioned. I think there are ways of elevating that. You know, the design challenge is taking those systems and trying to electrify in some way. I think 13 actually is is a really interesting case study of that, of like like you say, they've built in this big mechanic which puts this very um, kind of adrenaline-pumping kind of peak throughout battle, and that is a that is a deliberate and smart attempt to try and like drag a slightly more arcane feeling system into the modern day and i you know i would love to see people with this kind of budget continue to do those experiments what i do know is that the further it shifts into just real-time action it does run the risk of losing some of the complexity that i think people do demand of these games I, you know, I already think Final Fantasy VII Remake is a better balance of real-time action and slightly deeper systems. Maybe they have actually already hit the sweet spot in Final Fantasy VII Remake. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Like the, it's got like the ATB bars or whatever, and then it's also got you know what might be fair to say is Final Fantasy XII level party you know control even though you're not right. doing obviously the same complex programming but it's it's real time with pause so and it looks and, yeah. and you can still put put like the light the real time combat in a trailer and it looks exciting like the exciting fights and the cinematic fights in final fantasy 7 remake i'd say look as good as the ones in 16 um, yeah. 16 is a much simpler game in order to get there yeah absolutely but i think persona is a really good point actually because that is that is a pure trad turn-based system, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, it's but, really nerdy. Like, it's yeah, like it's, monster breeding. It's, like, confusing. <laughs> yeah, it's proper old, old school. And you might not understand how all of, all of the systems work while completing the game. That's the kind of game it is. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, but, <laughs> but you know, because they have such, like, cool sort of UI and fonts and stuff, it just, it seems contemporary and it's, it, yeah. the, presenta- the presentation is contemporary. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I sort of believe that too. I think, like, they don't need to make them real-time action games but maybe the success of stuff like horizon has convinced them they do a little bit i don't know yeah i mean that is like it is the genre of the moment and people kind of pursue it and there is this idea that if you don't have a big gorgeous open world or open world looking game on your books that maybe you're not you know satisfying a part of the audience but yeah but i i hate them now i don't want to play any more of them (laughs) 
yeah, this isn't that. Like, this isn't a. Pro- it has field areas that are a bit more open, but it's right. Yeah, it's not an. It's not an open world game by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, an open world game is a threat to me now. It's not a promise. <laughs> it's like a threat of a large space that will take fifty hours to complete or whatever. So. With about 80 hours of optional activities, very few of which are good. So there's a bit Mm. of that to it as well. Okay. um, All right. One of the last things I want to ask you, Matthew, before we get to the list is what's your favorite Final Fantasy game? Is this even worth asking you, Matthew? Do you have a good answer to this one? Mm, Whether I've played or not. You've got good thoughts in this series. You keep talking yourself out of it, but everything you've said so far is on point, I think. The bit I've played of Final Fantasy VII is amazing. Like, I love that city thing. I love the the story that unfolds there and the way that Cloud's buffeted between all these different groups and meets all these weird people. So much weird stuff happens in six, seven hours. A really great, dense bit of storytelling. But obviously, I haven't played the whole thing, so I haven't, I haven't gone back to it. I, I do really like the tone of 12, and I do like the systems of 12. I can't remember the name of all the characters, which is probably a problem. And like, the story hasn't stuck with me, but like the look of that thing and the, the tone of it is so, so distinct. Quite a kind of grown-up take on Final Fantasy mm. of the ones they've played probably that Tent- tentatively 12 yeah okay I think 12 is sort of like a respectable pick for somebody who wants to seem like they you know they're, they're, the game design side of the series is the thing that they value the most so uh, yeah it's a classic Edge thing. 9 12 <laughs> did it get an Edge 9? I don't I think know it did but... Yeah, I, I remember like 10 got an edge 6. In fact, that was like one of my first encounters with the edge, what an edge score could be versus other outlets. I was Were like, you like, bullshit! <laughs> I was like, a 6? I just remember reading it and being like, wow, they just really did not click with this. And You're a tiger style laugh in the face of Edge magazine. <laughs> that was like, that was right around the time I started reading Edge and it was a proper sort of like wake up call of, oh, this is how they review games <laughs> or this is how they see games. But right. also, even at the time, the voice acting seemed quite dubious in 10. It was never, you know, I had friends who watched me play 10 and they were kind of like, this is the game you like? There was a little bit of that to, to oh, someone right. watching the cutscenes. I just... Because a lot of the kids I hung up hung out with from the ages of like thirteen to sixteen were all that all they played was like Pez and GTA, and they didn't really play anything else. You're so like, Blitzball's a bit like Pez. Well, no, I, I I literally was saying that kind of thing because I'm just <laughs> I was such a like lame motherfucker, basically. So were you always trying to like, turn the conversation back to Final Fantasy X, like when they're talking about football players, you start dropping the name of Blitzball players, and you're like, <laughs> oh, sorry, that you probably wouldn't know them. They're from Blitzball, not football. <laughs> Yeah, Rivaldo's no brother. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it, yeah, I just think, uh, yeah, some of these, uh, some of these Guado players could, are, are really better than Barcelona. You know, like that sort of thing. No, it was, it was one of those things though where actually, like, actually, Final Fantasy was quite a key fork in the road for me of understanding a bit more about what I found culturally interesting. And right, I had like they were just they would say to me, "Why are you not interested in seeing Bad Boys too?" And I was like, "I don't know." I was, because I like playing this lame sort of Japanese like nerd shit. That's what I do. So because I'm friends with the OG bad boy Waka. <laughs> <laughs> but there was like this, yeah, there was like this weird split that occurred. And then when I got to college, I just wasn't really friends with those guys anymore because I realised we didn't really have anything in common. I just being at the time just like the sort of awful snob that I was, just thought, well, they're really boring because all they like is fucking football and talking about going to Ibiza. And I thought. Why don't you just fucking jump off a bridge? That's the lamest shit ever. Who cares? But <laughs> but obviously years later, I'm a bit more holistic about people's interests. And I can click with people who don't have the same interests as me. So 
I feel a bit differently about it, but they were totally like not prepared to engage whatsoever. And I realized, okay, I have to go and find people I have more things in common with. You know what I mean? Did Andrew stick with Final Fantasy Beyond Seven? Yeah, he did. He's he's like he's. I think he did play through. So he played. He had eight, nine. He didn't play ten. I don't think. But he obviously he watched me play a bit of ten. He did get into it a little bit with me. Um, did he call his he, heroes Andrew in all of them? <laughs> I, I think you could only. Re- I don't think he called Squall Andrew. I don't think <laughs> I so. I love that. <laughs> uh, I think, all the Andrews. <laughs> I think Squall was the only character you could name in in right. that game as well. Maybe. So yeah, that was uh, that might not be true actually. But either way, yeah, I, I think that was a more of a because he was like nine when he played seven. That's why Barrett was called Daniel, named after Daniel Ball, this very timid right. child that we went to school with, um, who was the opposite of Barrett's um, <laughs> <laughs> timid little boy. So that 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 was like a that was quite a key thing for me in terms of like understanding. Oh, okay, as you get older. There are things that you might be invested in, like like when you're kids, you're just sort of friends with kids because you are went to the same school and you kind of get along. And then when you're an adult, you want to develop connections with people who actually have interests the same as you and who can engage with you on things. I think that's that's kind of true. And Final Fantasy was a key part of that for me. But also, I don't want to sound like an unbearable motherfucker who expects all my friends to like Final Fantasy because they definitely don't. But I even noticed. I don't know if you had this in future, Matthew, but imagine no one really seemed to care about Final Fantasy except for me. In fact, I kind of became the guy who, whenever there was a 6 out of 10 Crystal Chronicles game to review on DS or Wii, they came to me with it on GamesTM and were like, do you want to review this and give right. it a 5 or whatever? So I became that guy a little bit. Did um, Was there more of a fandom for it at future? Because it seemed like generationally no one really cared, I imagine. Not really. I, f- I feel like the generation who were into Final Fantasy were like just before us, so it was like all the people on Games Master during the, the goal years and most of them had like moved on or ascended to be publishers or other boring jobs by then yeah there wasn't much i mean in our in, in our office i think our version of you was probably kim richards our version of you who was on official playstation 2 mag and then maybe the psp mag but sh- she would she would get some great opportunities like she was you know we good pals and she was always going to like you know, I've just been on this press trip and I interviewed Katarze about this thing or that thing or whatever. And yeah, she like absorbed all the Final Fantasy work. But there was a flurry of interest around 13, but I, th- I think it was just a, it was a bit of a bad hang. And like the narrative against that game just turned so quickly that I don't think anyone, no one cared enough to fight the the kind of prevailing we don't like final fantasy 13 yeah because that's the other key thing that happens right as well is that the how like how big oblivion and mass effect become in that generation yeah, yeah. sort of seems to seems to blot out 13 i guess kind I, of relevant to our 360 draft discussion recently you know i was surprised slightly surprised coming to these games a bit later that when i played 13 and like the big thing against 13 was everyone was like it's a corridor for 25 hours and actually the thing that amazed me the most was when i played final fantasy 10 i was like this is also a corridor <laughs> yes this isn't a world like how how did that i don't understand how that final fantasy 13 criticism like took root when when final fantasy 10 is the way it is and is celebrated like i don't get I, it like i know why i can tell you why so it had towns that's the difference whereas 13 <laughs> towns along a line well no but i'm not I, i'm agreeing with you i think yeah. they are very similar and i don't think the, ser- the series has never been until 15 they did open world they got one good open world and they ran out of time or money to do the second open world so they 
you know, you, they kind of zip you through it, even though people got out, you know, managed to use a glitch to go and explore this entire continent that obviously <laughs> built for it and didn't have time to finish. A world map in seven, in like from, from you know, one to nine, they are not open worlds. They are just like, they are menu screens, basically, with random battles. They are just... Right. But there's a but they create the impression in your head that the world is bigger than it actually is. Whereas thirteen doesn't try and do that. Thirteen's like you will just walk through the world as it is, and you also don't have the option to kind of go back to places as much as you did in ten. In ten, right. you can sort of freely wander back and forth, and you get the airship and stuff. Thirteen right. doesn't really have that as much. So, right. I think that's the difference, but I do agree with you. That was it was weird that that became the prevailing narrative. It's like yeah, yeah welcome to Final Fantasy. It's a it's a fundamentally linear game. That is that sometimes lets you kind of walk off into a, a slightly different cave on a on a map, and that's basically all that yeah. really happens. So I mean, yeah, thirteen just abysmal characters. That's his problem. I suppose that yeah, that is true. There's like I don't think all of them are that bad. There's but not there's, much... a, there's enough bad hangs because the way it, like it splits the cast up and then you're forced to spend time with certain characters at certain points is like it's quite hard to get through. Yeah, I kind of get it. I think the other problem it has is that it doesn't. It takes so long to educate you on how its combat system works that by the time it's taken the training wheels off and given you full control of your different classes and how you interlock them and that sort of right, stuff yeah. in your little pre-made sort of sets of classes, you're already about 20 to 30 hours deep into the game. That's very, like, I'm used to that in Xenoblade, so maybe I'm a bit more forgiving of that. Xenoblade Chronicles 3 is really bad for that as well. It's like 20-hour tutorial. Yeah, but then I just sort of ask, what did anyone have better to do in 2010? Do you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> you, you can you can you can sit through fucking 20 hours of tutorials. It's fine. It's uh... I like the music as well. Oh yeah. Also, I think that's the key thing about 13, right? Is I think it has the vibes of the Golden Age Final Fantasies. Like it sounds and feels like it and looks like it. It mm. looks like it fits with seven eight ten to me you know it just has that sort of like proto sci-fi yeah contemporary Un- style unbelievably good looking environmental design is like just the world design and how it all looked and i know you're not interacting with any of it because you're, you're on this fixed path but if you're one of those freaks you're just like spinning the camera slowly 360 degrees and drinking it in that's good for that absolutely absolutely fucking amazing um combat music as well in that one. oh like the basic battle theme is fucking unbelievable da, 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 da. isn't it that yeah, exactly. How can you give a game like a game with that battle theme any less than eight out of ten? I ask you. That's my a banger uh, that's of my a Leona Lewis track. <laughs> oh, that was okay. Okay, you have to mark it down two points. To that it's gone down to six. That's it now. So I, I have forgotten about that. Oh, what a poor choice. What a terrible choice that was. And how how badly that's dated. Like, can you name a Leona Lewis song for the past ten years, Matthew? I just I theme yeah. from Final Fantasy, but no, from the last ten years, no. <laughs> Okay, good. All right, very last question, then, Matthew, we'll get to the list. So what do you want to see from the future of the series? Well, A, that there is a future. I, I'm quite invested in there being mainline Final Fantasy entries and then not just going, fuck it, let's not do it. Agreed. I wouldn't mind them going back and trying to do doing something truly daring with a more of a turn-based system again. I feel like I play enough action games elsewhere that are, like, fine. I don't necessarily need that from Final Fantasy. I think 16 is going to leave a generally nice taste in the mouth for most people. I think. I, you know, yeah. I don't. I think it's going to be easier to get behind than like 15 was, for example. And maybe we should just relish that time of peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Like um, when I, I like my biggest sort of fallout with a listener recently is when someone logged on the RPGs chat and said that 15 was complete dog shit, and I was like. <laughs> Mate, you are in the wrong fucking Discord. There's a bit of that going on. Um, 
Yeah, and so I think that 15 was really flawed, and yeah, I'm pleased that 16 kind of, kind of corrects that. The thing that 15 did really well, though, is obviously the interaction between the different party members, and I think that I would like to see another numbered Final Fantasy build on that. It would be nice to have a, a sort of an expansive party again, like nine kind of characters you could choose from or something like uh. that. And, element you know you're so finding ways to encourage you to mix those up i think that the major strength of you know a a sort of like golden age bioware games right up to inquisition is just especially inquisition when you're wandering around the open worlds and you you hear the different characters you know two characters who never you've never had in your party before interacting and understanding their relationship through the quips and stuff i think that final fantasy could stand to do some more of that you know i guess my really hot take is that i think xenoblade chronicles kind of could be a final fantasy game if they wanted to call it that i think it has a lot of the same qualities i think that is a series which has balanced the desire to make something a bit more open with the kind of nerdiness of a jrpg i actually think that its combat system is is a really good balance of those two things an even shinier version of a xenoblade game a bit more self-contained could be a thing i would enjoy what about something personary where it's more about like character relationships and you know but being sort of like horny for different party members or you know wanting someone to be a best friend maybe like persona but with like grown-up characters that is the other thing i wonder if there's a breakthrough with 16 where they're like oh actually we don't just have to tell these chaste teenage stories we can actually like push this a bit further um subject matter wise because i think they risk being left behind a little bit by what they can what atlas are doing if they don't if they're not able to do that so i'm mm. pleased to see them sort of stepping up a bit on that i my sort of like wish is i want that i would love to see them make that 2.5 hd style a new final fantasy in that mold Ooh, okay. um, that'd be cool or you know maybe even doing like six or four or five with that style might be cool even though they've done the nice pixel remasters those are pretty cool on switch that sort of thing might be good. The other thing is, I would love to see a version of that for a game that has the aesthetic of the PS1 games. So 3D models on pre-rendered backgrounds. I'd love to see an original Final Fantasy that Ooh. looks like that, that deliberately sells you on that nostalgia. I think that could work really well, and it would theoretically cost them a lot less to make than a 16 does. So mm. yeah, um, that that's something I think they could probably do more with. Um, so yeah, that's it. Because they're always making so many of these, they can kind of make them on parallel tracks, essentially. So... Yeah, but it's hard to tell what the future looks like because there's so long between the numbered entries now. It's eight, like sorry, seven years between these two. It's just, it's so long. It used to be one or two years and now it's like GTA level weights basically. So mm. yeah, who knows, Matthew? Shall we take a quick break and come back with top five Final Fantasy games, Matthew? Let's do it. Welcome back to the podcast. So in this section, I'm going to read out my top five favorite Final Fantasy games and Matthew can sort of quiz me along the way, I guess. So (laughs) some caveats here then. So I want to kind of like lay out what my expertise is here. I don't, like I said, I don't know all of these games as well as some of the others. So one and two, I know moderately well. Three, I know very well. Four, I know very well. Five, I don't really know at all, which is might be controversial because I think, like I say, people do like the how malleable the characters are in that one six i know really well seven eight nine seven and eight i know you know almost everything about nine i've only ever really got about a third of the way through that one so i do apologize because that's much 
a much loved series but i've always struggled with the pacing of that one a little bit um 10 i love and um 11 i don't know 12 i know very well 13 i know very well and 15 i know very well the mmos i'm afraid i'm completely out on so 14 is like the main thrust of your interest in final fantasy this can be a very unsatisfying section so with the caveats out of the way matthew um, I thought I'd talk about the top five and, and why I've picked these then. So I wanted to give a selection of like an overview of what I think is great about the series and, and, and pick different types of game in assembling the top five to represent those sort of eras or specialities of the series. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to like pick a variety here as well as picking what I think is like the, you know, the cast iron top five because right. it, it really it's incredibly subjective what, what people consider the best and what they value because there is that thing where some people are invested in the world and some people invest in the gameplay mechanics and for me it's about both of those things hand in hand i would say you know yeah so that's what's determined this list then so okay to kick off then matthew i've put final fantasy 6 at number five here i picked this one because i've been playing the pixel remaster of this the past week and i think that the characterization and writing is really strong it's one of the best stories in the series but it's it's just it's really richly drawn and i think for most people who are curious about the past of the series this is the one where the art and sound will dazzle you the most where it'll feel the most like modern final fantasy um Mm. from from like how rich the storytelling is and even though the the combat system is not like it's not really particularly hard to get your head around but the world the steampunky world is very easy to get drawn into it's so beautifully rendered much like um sort of chrono trigger from around the same time it just shows shows the snes's capabilities at at their strongest mm. yeah just like just a really easy one to recommend to people now and yet yeah, just holds up really well it has like a great villain and some really like dark twists in it and just it just showed that kind of everything that final fantasy did well firing on all cylinders and even though this wasn't the one that was the breakout hit in the west it did do a lot to further its reputation in mm. north america and it could could plausibly have been a big hit in the uk if they'd bothered to even release it here so yes final fantasy 6 is first up matthew have you played this one a huge huge blind spot for me and it you know it's it's one which i know is just an absolute classic of the form plus worked on by mr xenoblade mr takahashi so um mm-hmm. i should play, play it for my uh xenoblade fandom if not my final fantasy fandom um i know that there's some mechs in it there are there's some called mode 7 shit in it as well just like um you know sort of sort of semi 3d effects in it so yeah it makes the most of what everything the snes can do and the music is absolutely extraordinary and uh yes it's um got a few famous scenes in it it's the first it's four four is like the first one to properly crack the template of what the series would become and how the and how the how the story would drive the the whole thing but six is the one that i think probably perfects that that template and Ooh. sets them up nicely for the for what's to come so yeah that's um that's the one i've decided to put here to represent i guess final fantasy's will, past matthew i will go and buy this the pixel remaster of it then yeah it's nice because you do do switch the font though from the default font to the pixel font they've done for it because that the default font is not very very handsome but the the reading comic sans <laughs> well it's, it's borderline that bad to be honest oh, it's, right, just, shit. it's just very unsightly and modern and it just the contrast kind of spoils it a little bit and i think these games do need a, a gentle touch it's why i always thought the ds version of chrono trigger was so good because the font for it was so well judged it was kind mm. of pixely so yeah six six is first up and yeah it does look nice in that collection plus you can whack a bunch of things on to make it simpler speed up battles that sort of stuff so yep good um good way to play that Number four, then, Matthew, I put Final Fantasy XII. I sort of punished this a little bit by, I guess, like 
my criticism of the story it not it being quite a dry story well localized and well voice acted and things mm. like that but Vaughn being the main character the Balthier was the most charismatic figure in there this Han Solo-esque kind of like um, sky pirate guy except instead of Chewbacca they've got like a, a you know an attractive bunny lady wearing very few clothes which is a you know very fun a fancy move quite weird actually that like <laughs> that's, that's such a horny character design in a game that it's not really that horny at all it's right. actually quite the character designs are quite quite muted compared to a lot of the other Final Fantasy games. So This yeah. is like closer to 16 in tone than any of the other ones I've played. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And it has like the whole kind of like empires at war and you know betrayal of like a royal family thing, right? That's also mm. I guess like I guess that's quite a big theme throughout Final Fantasy, but that's sort of that's sort of the starting point here. So yeah, I can so t- certainly see the um the connection there. It has the kind of gambit system which allows you to program all of these elaborate you know sort of commands for characters so that the party can essentially work function like clockwork based on what you've unlocked so you can be like heal this character when they're under 70 percent health use this spell when this character's got 100 percent health and then you can just set all of these different parameters and then the, the party will just do the battle for you so Ugh. it really rewards customization and strategy more than any other final fantasy game matthew it's, it's so rpg party meets factorio it's just a <laughs> pure automation efficiency it's amazing Absolutely, and it's for you know for a PS2 game as well. It's that's some quite complex data you're inputting there, and the game's just sort of like you know getting on with it, no problem. Plus, I think as well, like for a PS2 game, this is definitely one of definitely one of the ten best looking is, games for the system. You know, was was Matsuno involved in this? Yeah, he was, and then I think he left the project. Right, it has a bit of a murky like backstory. This one, right? It does. This is the one that I think we talked. I think we asked Simon about it. This is the right. one that they couldn't quite crack for that Final Fantasy feature and Edge. It feels like there's a missing chapter in the making of this right. game a, li- a little bit, yeah. But this, the end result is still really impressive. I think that when they put it on to um, PS4 and allowed you to speed up the, the combat, um, just adding all of these time parameters to make it super fast, it became an even slicker, nicer experience. Mm. So it's great there's a it's a nice way to play that they even redid the progression system the zodiac board thing that you could you could mess around with they completely expanded that and made it and improved it so they really you know they really did improve the game for that entry it has an art style that where the character faces are sort of like they're not quite so precise or angular that they look they would look bad blown up instead they have this quite painterly style to them um yeah so so it's dated really well it's a little so, bit like vagrant yeah. story oh yeah absolutely another of matsuno's games right so yeah. that that completely tracks and also uh, akihiko yoshida a key artist in the um in in final fantasy tactics and vagrant story and then final fantasy 12 and then would also work on uh, near automata did the main character design for that obviously an incredibly talented artist but also completely different to what Nomura was bringing to the series like that's the thing about 12 it if you kind of see like Nomura is like the who joins the the series from from four and starts doing the character designs from six and then mostly in seven onwards that comes to define what the modern Final Fantasy look is but then it's cool that Square Enix has never taught themselves out of taking on other art styles too and 12's art style is quite mature and different and yeah it gives Ugh. it a completely different sort of sense of tone so you saying the names there of like the artist or whatnot it just reminded me of something quite funny actually when we got the final fantasy 16 code you get like a reviewer's guide with it right and there's a big bit in it where it lists like all the key creators on the game and like what else they've been in because they're really leaning on that heavily with 16 so they're kind of like the producer you know made final fantasy 14 
and you know the combat is this guy who did Devil May Cry Five, and so it says their name, and then it says the game underneath them in this very like uh, delicate font. And then on the composer, it said uh, Masayoshi Soken, and then underneath it, it said Mario Hoops Three on Three. It's like, oh, the Mario basketball guy. <laughs> t- tell you what, though. Music's fucking rad in 16. Like, it's the combat music's fantastic. And then the, the the theme that plays when the two summons are fighting at the end of that demo is just amazing. It's got that, like, operatic thing that kind of 15 lent into as well, where when the summons turn up, it feels like, okay, it's big boy time now. It's all kicking off kind of thing. So, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, um, it's good. That's good. Yeah, I know you're a big um, Mario 3v3 hoops guy, Matthew. So that's, uh, that was a <laughs> oh, big he did, for you. He did all Final Fantasy fourteen too, which I know is like absolutely beloved for his music. So, But they needed to put two games in there. So well, that's that it. It's there. just that I wouldn't have put Mario basketball in there. That's all. <laughs> it's an interesting marketing choice, that, because I think there is... No, I think they're they're very like it's very opaque how Square Enix actually works. I would say like how the business units break down. Who right. gets to make who gets to make a mainstream Final Fantasy entry is a really like that's a I don't know how that happens. How that gets determined, whether it's pitched for, whether it's given to them, whether it's earned, that sort of thing. That process is completely opaque. So it is interesting that when they lean into these 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 kind of like creatives, because the community is very aware of who the developers are. So mm. they are kind of almost dialing up the myth of them a little bit by being like, these are the games they made. And you can start mm. to draw conclusions about how that's informed what this game looks like. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. All right, then. So, yeah, that's FF12. I think it's, I think I would, you know, I would fairly agree that it's the the most mechanically sophisticated entry in the entire series. It's, you know, or at least like the mo- the more modern games. And so that's my concession to the gameplay mechanics side of Final Fantasy. Nice. This is story don't really care about this game as as well localized as it is and beautifully presented as the world is but mechanics you know tip top so bosh yeah, lives <laughs> okay number three my beloved final fantasy 8 this is a game that's got a proper sort of like cult fandom around it i think it because it followed seven seven which seven was obviously the biggest game in the series and i had the most cultural impact eight eight reviewed really well but it has such a kind of complex and wacky story and anime-ish story that it's it's quite out there like there's there's an element in the story where essentially they are these mercenaries who are at this mercenary school which is extremely anime obviously <laughs> and their kind of like goal is to take down this sorceress basically but it, it then turns into this like this battle over time where time itself is going to be compressed by this sorceress in the future and then it turns out all the main characters know each other and have amnesia and it's it's like it's a bit all over the place but I think when you're a teenager playing this, like the vibes of it, it's it's what it's like hanging out with a group of teenagers. It captures that really, really well, I think. Just one of them's grumpy, one of them's really cheerful. Everyone's emotions are a bit exaggerated, but it does really feel like taking a journey with a bunch of like teenage pals. Which character are you most like? I'm quite grumpy like Squall, but I'm simply not that good looking. So I feel like <laughs> it would be egregious to compare myself to him. Like looks-wise, I'm probably that. There's that guy... Uh, <laughs> there's like... Kiros and Ward, um, Laguna's pals. I'm probably Ward, the guy who's got like the big, the big sort of like harpoon thing, who is like a bit overweight. That's like my look, but personality-wise, I guess I'm probably more like Squall. Your routine is from war to Squall, though. <laughs> That's what you said when you when you went to Pure Gym. You were like, I'm a Ward, but I want to be a Squall. And they were like. Yes, I want- get on that running yeah. machine dweeb <laughs> yeah it's good well yeah you i hope you're happy to spend three hours a day here and stop eating what's it's you motherfucker <laughs> um 
yeah. So, whereas, like, my, my little brother is, like, pure Zell. Whenever I play that game, I'm just like, yeah, Zell is my little brother. Just, like, cheerful and a bit in your face too much and all this stuff. <laughs> right. And, yeah, that's, yeah. So they, they do kind of feel Zell. like... <laughs> they do sort of feel like real characters, with the exception of maybe um, Irvine Kinius, the, like, guy who wears a cowboy hat. I don't, I never knew anyone who was a bit like him, really. So uh, <laughs> that's a bit different. And so, yeah, it's it's... I think storytelling wise, it's fair to say this is all over the place, but the world is really cool because it's kind of like the, it was like the contemporary our world sort of take on Final Fantasy. You'd go to Delling City and it's just Paris and there's other places you go to and they, they feels like it feels semi-futuristic, but not massively so. And so um, I think that that worked really well and you just like drive a little car across the map and stuff and it feels like oh yeah this is like you know if you're making a final fantasy it's set in the real world this is pretty close to it also has like loads of cool secrets in it as well like i mentioned before in the best i think it's in the best boss battles episode that once you get the the um airship in this which is actually a spaceship the ragnarok you can land on this like deep sea facility in the middle of the ocean and that's how you get bahamut but it's also if you can go further down you fight ultimate weapon there and it's this quite spooky thing to uncover there's like the card game of course triple triad which is much beloved and yeah there's there's a lot going on in this game and i I can see why it's got the cult reputation it has um so you did play this one didn't you an opening chunk of it i have i haven't finished it at all i I remember feeling like it was quite an exciting rush of cinematic moments certainly in the stretch that i've played like the way that you're buffeted between different sequences and camera perspective changes and weird little gimmicks it seemed to add for like certain certain sections of it seemed very sort of experimental and fun in that way yeah absolutely i think that the amount of fmvs in this i think they stepped up massively from seven and then they were just so high-end as well compared to seven that it just i think like the reason a lot of the characters seem so vivid is you get to see them in that those amazing fmvs and they give you a real impression of what they like look and sound like and, and how they move and how they behave and so i think that dialed up people's investment in them a little bit um so there's yeah that's kind of a key part of it anything else to point out here the junctioning system is gameplay wise quite controversial because essentially you had to go around harvesting spells and then you had to attach those spells to your stats in order to improve them so let's say you get 100 fire spells you attach that to your to squall's strength and then he is stronger but he would also do like a fire elemental damage when he attacks characters so it's a really rich system in terms of its potential but it does also mean you have to it kind of dissuades you from using your spells as much or it creates a risk and reward thing where you're like, do I want to ebb away at my strength by using too much of this spell that's quite hard to get, that sort of thing. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, I just, I just love, I love eight. I thought it was great. I think I, I probably for a long time probably preferred eight to seven. These days, it's a bit a uh, bit more in the other direction, Matthew. So yes. Okay. That's all right. We all know you secretly like this one more. That's okay. Well, you know, it's uh, it's actually like the thing that kind of lets it down is on the last disc, it locks you out of the open world. So you can't, I say open world, the world map, <laughs> not an open world. So you can't go back to places because you travel to the future. And so everyone's like either, everyone's pretty much dead is a suggestion. I heard someone say that broadly people like, they like eight and 10 or they like seven and nine. Do you think there's much in that? I don't really get that actually. No, because... Okay. The thing I think that Nine has is that it has like connections back to the more medieval style roots of Final Fantasies like five and four and even earlier than that. So seven to me, it feels like seven, eight, and ten, and maybe thirteen are a bit of a set to me, and maybe fifteen as well. Just because maybe it's the Nomura connection there, but yeah. Uh, f- from afar, I, I I always you know I could see the through line from seven to eight in terms of like tech 
and just how good these games looked and definitely like the but you know the buzz there that, that, that didn't necessarily transfer from eight to nine like when i was reading games master i remember i wasn't as into whatever nine was doing yeah i think that nine just seemed slightly less sexy by comparison um you know just it didn't have the humanoid it had like it had the slightly deformed character designs i guess is the is that the right word i don't really know like i guess stylized character designs you know what i mean so the sort of big heads little bodies kind of thing that was maybe not quite as impressive to people at the time as like these are these are real people i mean squall just looked like river phoenix you know it just that was like the the goal there to make them seem like real people and so it also arrived really late on in the ps1 generation like i think that by the time it launched in the west the ps2 was already out so it was late on and yeah maybe not as sexy by comparison matthew so might be a bit of that to it okay number two final fantasy 7 i think that the reason this game's reputation remains so sort of like it remains in such high esteem after all this time is that it's sort of like it's so complete feeling there's just Mm. so much going on in it and it just the story never really slows down right up until that final fight with sephiroth it just keeps escalating and escalating so you get obviously spoiler alert the death of Aerith. But then you get like the weapons coming out of the crater and then like this sudden feeling of the planet fighting back against Shinra and, and the people there. And you get the um, meteor in the sky and this, this feeling of impending doom. And then, yeah, you get like the, the weapons fighting Shinra and blowing up the, the, the cannon when it's strapped to the middle of Midgar. And there's just all these like elaborate kind of like big storytelling beats that happen throughout the game. It just keeps going and going. And then... It also just has like loads for you to do after you've actually like when you've got to like the, the very final fight, so you can go and like do the whole Chocobo thing, you can go and find more summons like Knights of the Round, and um you can go and explore places you haven't necessarily been to before and it just there was just this feeling of like it's kind of the everything game in a lot of ways. It's just so elaborate, it's got like the gold saucer in it, so you can go and enjoy lots of in game kind of mini games and stuff like that. Just just so much meat on the bones of this one mm. and the char- the characters are just so so iconic and i can see why its reputation remains so so strong after all this time even if gameplay wise I, I don't know if materia is necessarily my favorite system or i think it's that exciting it's sort of like progressing like magical spells having their own different their own sort of progression track essentially and becoming more powerful it's cool to have those spells level up i guess but i don't know i don't know if it's more exciting as a system than the sphere grid is in final fantasy 10 or like the, the Gambit system is in 12, for example. I don't know mm. if gameplay-wise 7 necessarily has anything that elaborate, but I suppose, Matthew, to your point about presentation, this was the first one where they did like the 3D camera battles and you had like zoom-ins and characters that do spells and stuff like that, things you just couldn't do on the SNES. So, mm. yeah, um, I can totally see why it was it was this huge moment. And uh, yeah, after, after all this time, my appreciation of it has only grown. Any thoughts on this one, Matthew? I do love the opening stretch of it. The bit that I have played, you know, I played it several times because I didn't have a safeguard when I borrowed a PS1. It's just so iconic. The music is just amazing. And that opening cutscene is, is definitely like a, a, ch- a chills moment. I think a lot of the stuff it was doing on and trading in is just... It's like stuff that wasn't happening on like Nintendo at the time. Like its values of like storytelling and cutting edge presentation are very different to Nintendo's kind of gameplay first ethos. So it just seemed totally different and totally exotic, but also incredibly exciting. And it is kind of where games went and what they value more more than other things now. I would say I am interested as someone who hasn't played 
much beyond I've got out into the world map and kind of pooped around a couple of places, but this uh, second act of it that we're getting remade, has that got delights greater than the first act? I think so, but I was quite interested that when 7 Remake came around, people were kind of like, well, the Midgar bit is the most iconic bit of the game. I can still see why, because it has this like Blade Runner-y presentation, and the music just really dials up the industrial dystopia mm. element of that that part of the game. Whereas when you get out of uh, Midgar it's completely different the world's you know it's not all doom and gloom there's you know bright and shiny bits you go to the Costa del Sol and it's like there's dudes in swim shorts playing beach ball and yeah the vibes of it completely change I, I personally think that it only gets better once you leave Midgar but you know it's Ooh. yeah there's certainly some delights out there to be found some good storytelling moments I have to play seven in its entirety and then I've got to play these remakes it's just it's just too much of a blind spot it's it's like a, a sacred gaming text I feel terrible for having not played it I feel bad about not having played Final Fantasy 6 but having not finished seven is a really uh that's like a film critic having not seen Citizen Kane good film Citizen Kane I watched it during the pandemic it's decent <laughs> that's Do my you take like on the opening stretch of Citizen Kane or like the second stretch where it goes more open world <laughs> I like it when he fights the Midgazolum and uh, <laughs> impales it. It's a you know it was a bold choice by Orson Welles. You know, really Do you know Rosebud me. was the name of his chocobo. <laughs> Rosebud was the real name of the Buster Sword. You know, it's, uh... <laughs> has sixteen playing sixteen given you more of an appetite to play the older ones, Matthew, or less so? Uh, it's definitely given me an appetite to play Final Fantasy VII remake. It's less so playing sixteen and more the fact that like Final Fantasy is on people's minds a lot and people are talking about it and I always feel like a bit of a lemon not being able to kind of take part in quite a massive series like I look down on people who haven't played a Zelda or haven't played the key Zelda games and I would imagine I would look down on me you know as a they would look down on me as a Final Fantasy non-player so yeah I should I just need to get on top of it they're not that <laughs> long are they uh they are, they're pretty long. I think they're, they're sizable enough. You'd end up spending... You have to allocate at least 40 hours for most of them, I'd say. They're not, well, they're not short games. That's doable. Like, I've played 150 hours of three Xenoblades. So. Yeah, and Tears of the Kingdom. How many hours are you up to in that Tears of the Kingdom now? Oh, 120. Yeah, at the risk of turning every podcast into the Tears of the Kingdom podcast, as has been happening more and more. I should, just, um, I should just play seven and we can do a deep dive seven episode. Yeah, that'd be cool, but uh, no pressure, because that is a big undertaking. I just want to know what a Bugenhagen is. <laughs> I love that of being your motivation for playing seven for the first time. That's. Uh, I just want to see cool. it to make sure it's as, as shit as I think it is. <laughs> not, not the game, specifically Bugenhagen. I don't think anything called that can be good. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that bit is cool because he explains oh, like no. basically <laughs> he explains basically like the history of the universe in a kind of a, a sort of like uh, uh, like an observatory kind of area basically. And all these oh, planets God. are spinning around him while he's talking about it. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. But okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I'll let you decide on Bugenhagen. You're uh, that's a new a good grudge for you in 2023, I think. Okay, <laughs> last one then. Super predictable. Final Fantasy X is my uh, number one. I so I think this. This is my number one because it's a real personal choice from it being my first big Final Fantasy for sure. But I also think that it does have the right mix of story and gameplay mechanics. Like it's it's sort of 50-50 to me because the sphere grid in the game essentially allows you to board game like move your character, each character in your party around this big board, unlocking these different nodes which increase your stats, add new abilities, that sort of thing. But the interesting twist is 
they all share the same board. So in theory, if you keep playing and playing, you'll fill up the board and all your characters will be as good as each other and have the same abilities and stuff like that. The reality is it takes many, many hours to do that. So most people won't end up doing that um, before while they play the game. But it means there's loads of headroom for you to... You can even delete nodes and then add new ones. So if you don't want a plus one strength node, you want a plus four strength node, you can delete the plus one one and then replace it. So you can essentially just make your... If you're willing to, to bother to do that, and this takes hundreds of hours to get the most out of it, you can do it. So I think just by having that ceiling alone, it makes the combat... It just it makes the gameplay mechanics that a bit more sophisticated. And so you have that alongside this turn-based combat system where you are told whose move it is next all the time there's a big like there's like a bar that's got a running bar that tells you okay it's Waka's turn next or it's Yuna's turn next and then when you cast like haste or something like that it will show you how your characters will move up in the pecking order essentially to to unleash attacks and so it gives you all this information about your characters and 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 how the game works that allows you to make good informed decisions and I think that it just means it's a really spot-on rpg experience in that respect without being too complicated so that's one part of it the story okay the voice acting is not very good in this game we can all agree on that and yeah. there are some like compromises and localization um it's, sorry it's about you like jump in there it doesn't hurt my ears no i mean there are like the bits like the laughing scene is all over the place yeah i know yeah. but like but whatever. i i don't think it's always bad is the thing i think that yeah. some moments do land it's got it's got like a I think this, the reason that I really like the story is it has this really downbeat feeling to it because obviously it is about this force called Sin that is basically keeping this entire world under duress and the people there feel like they are, you know, in servitude to this religion in order to like, st- in order to not die. Essentially, they have to follow these teachings in order to like f- to keep living, and no one, no, no world, no like part of this world can ever build up too much for fear of Sin coming along and destroying it. And you see early on in the game, Sin destroys this town. And just goes around like murdering all these people. And it's just got this really melancholy feeling of death pervading the entire world. You're always seeing these these kind of like these little spirit lights kind of moving around that suggest that dead people have just been left there and and and, and just kind of haunt the place. And it's really unusual to have that amid this quite cheerful looking tropical environment. It's a really beautiful and bright place. Mm. And that contrast just really works for me. And so that kind of like the whole kind of cycle of death element to the story. I think works even when the the sort of like John DiMaggio doing like a some a daft bit of dialogue doesn't necessarily <laughs> click. So yeah, it balances out. So Ted is my favourite. I love that it's got all that stuff and Wacker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Blitzball, a mini game that people seem to hate except for me. But I'm a big Blitzball head, so yeah, tends tends like the complete package to me. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to someone who's new to the series for the first time. But I don't know if you've played even if you've played like one other Final Fantasy and you're curious about what else to play, then Ten is probably the one where I'm like, this is the this is the complete package in one game. I think Ooh. so. Yeah, not the sequel though, which I'm not a fan of. So yes, uh, that's my top five, Matthew. Catherine really really loves Ten as well. Like it's yeah. Quite, I think though you probably both played it at a similar time at a similar hmm. age. I think it probably just hit hit right at a certain time, and that that is a big part with these games. Is like the one that you play first or the one that you play in your formative years is the one which like absolutely gets under your skin because like Catherine's like super super into like what's her name who's the main who's the girl the main girl in this one yeah and you know when I when I played it I could see I was like oh these characters are like quite nicely drawn and everything but like she's really into that character in a way that you only can be if it came part of your like 
sort of interwoven with your DNA at that age. Yeah, I think that is true. Uh, Yuna is a good character though because she is she carries the weight of you know her father was the guy who killed Sin last time, and now it's expected that she'll do the same here and then give her life in service of doing that, like her father did. And so that's quite an interesting hook. And really, she's making all the decisions that drive the story. So mm. even though Tidus is the protagonist, he's sort of just along for the ride, really. Yeah, I can see why she would click. She's also, she seems passive, but she's not really passive. She is capable of making decisions. She chooses to, you know, defy the religion at the heart of the game. Um, she almost marries the gross guy Seymour just to... <laughs> broker peace and stuff like that you you see her making these calls along the way and so well, it is pretty gross but um yeah i don't know their wedding seemed like it was a nice affair till they all turned up on the airship but you know who am i to say so, um so, so yeah might you see my uh, biggest takeaway from it was that guy who said shoot puff in that weird voice <laughs> right is he shoot puff yeah you know it's iconic stuff but... yeah so yeah, I can see why I can see why Yuna would click. How, how did Catherine feel about her hot pants and handguns age, Matthew? Did she did that click with her as much? Oh, uh, I don't know. We haven't spoken about that. <laughs> well, you know, that, <laughs> those are like Yuna's college years, basically. So, uh, yeah, okay. We made some mistakes in our youth. <laughs> so, honorable mentions, Matthew. Pretty much the entire series, I guess, in an honorable mention here. Like they've all got reasons to play them and check them out. They are all pretty widely available. I personally wouldn't bother with one, two, or three these days. I just don't. I think they're just too old. That mm. you've got be- you've got better things to be doing with your time. I would rather, personally, I would rather spend my time digging out Final Fantasy Tactics or something like that than playing right. one, two, or three. Just crystal bearers spinoffs. <laughs> 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 yeah, not quite one of my honorable mentions. That one. Um, what? <laughs> Fifteen. Well, if you like fishing mini games with using a Wiimote, then you know by all means knock yourself out. It's just not my that sort was... of thing, dog. That, that crystal bearers is the responsibility of the um the uh, Kawazu is the the weirdo behind Final Fantasy two and its weird right. systems. Yeah, yeah, like the, those systems in two. Because <laughs> I slightly I slightly misidentified two in my original outlay. There, three is the first one with the job system. Two is the one that yeah bends the game around how you progress. But most people will just find that too confusing and hard to be honest. Like I think so. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, Crisis Core. I love that as a spin off a spin off entry. Obviously, I've talked about that before in the podcast. Fifteen has like impeccable vibes, even though it's all over the place story wise, and there's not much to the combat to speak of, but. Those vibes are so good that I argue argue that it carries it through anyway. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah, pr- pretty much the 15. entire series is worth checking out. 15 well, is the know. loopiest thing. For all the stress of trying to get it over, over the finish line, yet they still had time to do two quite weird demos, which were set in like bespoke areas. An app pinball game that you could play <laughs> and uh, uh, all that weird DLC and like a movie you had to watch and maybe some anime as well. What a thing. <laughs> Yeah, there's, it's a shame because I, I get the impression that the vision of 15 with the DLC was to build it into a more complete thing with each yeah. DLC. But what they really should have done is just made one big expansion that expanded on the back half of the game. Yeah. They sort of did that a little bit, but I think that's all. They should have just said, like, it's 20 quid and we'll give you the complete version where it's like an, another open world and you can go and do all this other extra stuff. But yeah, I agree. Those chapters by themselves don't really add too much. So no. uh, yeah. I did like that. That first demo was awesome, though. The one they did in, fifth, in um, 2015. That was in the game, that section. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe I'm thinking there was one which was set in like a weird, like, dream, like, mind palace, right? Yeah. Yeah, with Carbuncle, you're kind of like you're literally like, 
you're you're little and then like but then everything else around you is big it's like that alice in wonderland level in kingdom hearts or something it's quite strange if i was struggling with the late game problems that that game had i don't know if i would sign off on let's do this other thing which isn't even in the game and you're going to spend some time with the carbuncle do you know what i think i agree with you on that one i think that was a straight a strange call you know i'd have just put i would have at least explained what the fuck is going on with that weird dude in the in the hat going around i'd know who was the end boss in that game i never really knew what his deal was so oh, i thought he had the makings of a good villain old arden yeah arden but you but just sort was, of like yeah. he tells you oh yeah go in this crater and fight titan and you're like who the fuck are you and then later on it's like oh yeah i'm actually like one of your evil relatives or something who's traveled across time the, or some bullshit it was very the, confusing the weird moments in that game where the summons did turn up were quite exciting like oh my God, when you, when you hit so when you hit the weird secret criteria that didn't tell you for them turning <laughs> up <laughs> Yeah, there's also a bit they added in the revised version of the game and they added some bits to the last city in the game. There's a cutscene they added where all the summons turn up and it's fucking amazing when they do that because they are all just (laughs) such spectacular looking things. Just like Titan running across the city and then like Bahamut firing, you know, laser shit from the sky and stuff. Just they really got that part of the game right. Do you get the summons have the same kind of impact in 16, do you think? Because obviously I've only seen... I've seen four of them so far because they appear quite early on in the story. Are there many more to be found, Matthew? There are a few more. They've, they've. I think they spaff too much of it in the in the trailers gotcha, and in the, yeah. in the previews and things. They're mainly only used for boss fights. You don't have control over summoning them. Yeah, it's more that you kind of yeah you absorb like a bit of their move set into Clive's move set is kind of the mechanic. Okay, that makes but sense. But they are yeah. cool. The boss fights with them are often many phases long and you get to really see them do all their iconic moves and things like that. It's it is pretty rad. Yeah, okay, cool. That um that really works, I think, uh, mm. as, a, as an approach. So yeah, excited to see those, even though I do think that the old like hidden hidden summons was part of the magic of Final Fantasy for a long time. And so I guess they're harder to do in the modern age where they just require so much work on them. So it feels crazy not to sell the game based on them. So yeah, but um part of the magic of Ted as well as finding like the Marga sisters and Yojimbo and um Anima. Uh, Anima was in the trailers, but the rest of them you just didn't know about. So uh right. yeah, I think that kind of worked. Alright. What are the Marga cool. sisters? Marga sisters, they're like three bug ladies who like you tell them to do, you give them like prompts you don't give them commands you give them prompts and you, you're like you know use some magic or something like that they'll just drop a spell but you don't determine which spell but between the three of them they can do a phenomenal amount of damage they're really strange characters though did Ooh. you not get these ones when you played through 10 with Catherine? we didn't go like super deep into like collecting everything you have to go into like there's a secret temple in the calm lands and you have to basically do a lot of random task and get a couple of items to get them they are the they're like the final summon in the game basically i remember thinking oh wow i can't wait to get these these things like if they can you know anima is like the second to last one if they're any even better than anima it's going to be amazing and it's like a little lady who's like a, a little wasp lady and it's like a little lady ladybird lady and then like a grasshopper lady they're just quite strange to look at mm-hmm. yeah they're very very odd they i think they previously appeared in something like five i think they appeared in so they were right. returning summon yeah they were just really bizarre yeah 10's got 10's got some amazing summons so yeah okay that's pretty much it matthew that's my top five so you know it's over now we did the final fantasy episode but we've got like a bonus round to come so should we take a quick break and come back with that yeah let's do it
Okay, welcome to the bonus round. So people who have been listening to the podcast lately will notice that me and Matthew, for a laugh, have just started bolting on lots of random questions to ask each other at the end of these episodes. So we just did this in our Boss Battles um, Excel episode where we asked things like, who is the most ideologically correct boss? Who would be the worst boss to work for in real life? Matthew selected uh, Hitler from Wolfenstein, which was a great podcast moment. Uh, it's a good shout. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, who can disagree with that? Frankly? Name a Vila boss. <laughs> okay, so yes, we're doing the same thing with Final Fantasy. Matthew's going to ask me some rapid fire questions here. I will try and ask them, answer them relatively quickly. So about 14 of them here, Matthew. Do you want to kick them off? Your starter for 10. What's your favourite Final Fantasy battle theme? Gosh, this is like probably the hardest question on this list because it's just <laughs> yeah. so... Uh, because they always nail this. It feels like they must put so much work into figuring out a battle theme that people can listen to 200 times without being mad and still being pumped every time they hear it. I am actually going to pick, controversially, the Final Fantasy 13 battle theme for this. Oh! I think I do, you know, you hummed it earlier. I think that is like the right mix of when it kicks off it sounds like oh okay you you know it's it's like battle setup music and then it turns into this really exciting kind of like thumping theme and it sort of it just ma- it matches the world and the characters really well that theme as well it fits the kind of set PC approach to the battle system they've got in the game where it has the stagger system and you're building up to that moment and then when they you know when you get when you reach it and then you kind of like go all in it just it just it really kind of tunes nicely into what that battle experience is mm. like so yeah pick that one matthew nice so, uh, a little yeah. shout out for final fantasy 15 from me i love that theme yeah there's like several different ones for that one but they're the basic ones are really good for sure mm. um, oh shimamura yeah. banging away on a piano yeah absolutely like that was that was the the cool you know because obviously shimamura did kingdom hearts as well and those soundtracks are kind of similar so yeah, it, it really works, oh, I think. No. Yeah. Am I secret Kingdom Hearts like her? <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite Final Fantasy boss theme? This is like another slightly controversial one, but I'm going to pick 15 for this one because I'm actually specifically picking the very like booming opera-y track from this one, Omnis Lacrima from Final Fantasy 15. <laughs> They used it in the FF FF versus 13 announcement video. So it's around in the trailers for ages. But anytime you hear this, it's like, you know, sort of opera singers in the background. It's got a proper, oh, it's really popping off kind of feel to it. And I think they only save it for the really, really big battles. Yeah, that one really does it for me. That sets the stage so, so nicely. But, you know, shout outs to the the themes from 7 as well. You know that one? That was good. And then 10 as well, which is, 10s is really intense and dark. And like, again, feels very dramatic, especially compared to the battle theme the battle theme i said this before sounds like soundtrack to like watching a horse racing show on channel four or something it's just really all over the place i think i like it but it's um quite unusual so yeah eight has got a really good one as well but yeah nice i whenever i hear the little kind of keyboardy riffs in final fantasy 7 i always think of the doors i find it very distracting yeah that's that's true actually i'd never really thought of that that's quite a good quite a good shout but yeah um, um, yeah, okay, I'll, put a little, I'll put a little blast of the uh, Final Fantasy 15 boss theme in here so everyone can hear it in its full glory. People are always complaining we don't talk about game music enough, Matthew, but um, hopefully this explains why having to hear me fucking hum this stuff out loud. Yeah, it wasn't good, was it? Uh, okay, 
Next up. Who's the best party member from the series? I'm going to take take my guy Oren from Final Fantasy X here. Guy with a big sword who drinks from a little flask of booze at all times, you know, just to kind of keep himself going. How do you know it's booze? I think it's like pretty strongly suggested that it's like sake or something. It's, oh, okay. I think they had to they had to swap it in Kingdom Hearts for like a water bottle or something. I, I can't remember. They did something to like... <laughs> in a can of Rio. He's <laughs> drinking from a can of Rio. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's a sort of defang him slightly for Kingdom Hearts, I think. So they took that out. Oris is great because he's also like incredibly strong. His like moves, his moveset is is great. He, he's added like partway into the game. So it makes a difference when he he's joins your party. And I think that he was just never out of my party. I remember the this one guy who was like kind of an idiot who was in my science class at school. The one thing we bonded over was Final Fantasy X. And he, and he would just every now and then he'd ask me, how how much damage does your Auron do? And that was like a thing we discussed for a while. Um, yeah, so I was a, yeah, I'm a big Auron head here, Matthew. Do you have a, an answer to this one? The chef from Final Fantasy XV. I thought you'd pick him. Yeah, I thought you'd pick him because he just makes you makes food for you. So that, yeah. that in, your, in your eyes, yeah. Okay, <laughs> next one then. Who's the worst party member from the series? I'm afraid I've got no time for uh, Cat Seth from Final Fantasy VII. Just a little oh. fucking dummy lad. Like, soft toy. I could never figure out what his combat style was about. And he just seemed like a bit of a waste of time to me. They kill him off at one point, then he comes back. I just, yeah, never quite gelled with that character. Then I think mm. he was Scottish in FF7 Advent Children, which I was really confused by. So, uh, yeah, he's not the one for me, dog. <laughs> Kimari, bad hang. Kimari, actually, Kimari, in terms of combat and his usefulness, he was actually, I'd never found a use for him. So, yeah, he, he would be up there for sure, Kimari. I don't think he's necessarily a bad hang. I mean, you know... <laughs> Compared to Wucker, I suppose, anyone seems like a good hang next to Wucker. So. It's just the old, it's cat people. You know I'm not into cat people. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Who is the greatest Final Fantasy protagonist? Oh, this one's tough. I think I might go to my to go to bat for my guy Cecil from Final Fantasy IV. Because Ooh. he sort of like goes through this sort of redemptive arc in the game. So he starts as like this, you know, this basically like yeah darker figure then becomes this kind of holy knight type figure as well th- throughout the story so i think he's sort of because he's the one where they really crack what the final fantasy protagonist is about i think like that he's a good shout for that one and he doesn't have the angst of some of the later ones so like you can argue that as it reaches the ps1 ps2 age you do get this anime protagonist type figure really become more of the central character in the game and i but i don't think he has that in four in four he's like this reluctant knight who is forced to firebomb this village essentially and then realizes the terrible price of doing that and then yeah from there kind of vows to sort of like turn things around so i think he's he's very richly drawn and sets the template for what follows in a lot of ways matthew so yeah i'm gonna go with cecil for that one what about who's your worst protagonist i think this would have to be Varn from final fantasy 12 it's just a real blank slate of a sort of like naff luke skywalker guy i just don't really see what his deal was he felt like he really was created to just exist in the shadow of both there so mm. yeah he's he's poor Not, you don't buy into his his delightful friendship with pinello oh god it's like uh everyone in that game has a name that sounds like it's a type of pasta do you know what i mean it's a bit <laughs> there's a bit of that going on it, yeah i just those two characters are just kind of like wet and boring and yeah. both there just seems so sexy and exciting by comparison so yeah it's 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 Vaughn just kind of by default in some ways cool in which case who's the greatest final fantasy antagonist i think this would probably be sephiroth hell house hell house (laughs) (laughs) yeah hell house is obviously up there you know just like uh, just really sort of sticks i mean people talk about hell house more than they talk about the antagonist in most final fantasy games to be honest (laughs) 
but as you were, give us the Sephiroth rundown. Yeah, so Sephiroth was, you know, the, the key thing with, with him, I, I definitely said this on a very recent podcast, but you don't meet him for a long time. You see him in flashback, you know, you, you see his origin story, you see him burn an entire town down and go completely mad, but you are always building up to your encounter with him. And then, you know, when you do when you do meet him, it is this epic kind of like one-on-one duel, essentially, and to, to kind of cap off the story. And so I think that that sort of like feeling of symbiosis between Cloud and Sephiroth is kind of the reason that people are just really into those characters and mm. that world, I think. It just really powers the entire thing. So he's up there. I don't know, like Kefka from Final Fantasy VI, he would be up there for me too. Just a really great, great antagonist. A riff on the, I guess, on like the Jack Nicholson Joker. Just sort of, sort of like completely doesn't, He's he's pure chaos. His motivations seem really unclear, and I need to play he's this just game. really scary. It's good. It's a good game, man. It's really good. Six. <laughs> there aren't that many great antagonists in Final Fantasy. I would say it's sort of like I, I sort of the one in um, sixteen. I'll just say the female antagonist you meet early on in that game seems like she's got the makings of a great antagonist, Matthew. I just that's like and it feels like a character I've not seen in Final Fantasy before either. Yeah, she's a, she's a real piece of shit because there's the but there's the other one who looks quite like the mum who's in the opening right. cutscene, Benedicta. The mum is a really well-drawn piece of shit that character. <laughs> Yeah, on the antagonist front, I also I like the judges in Final Fantasy XII. The concept mm. of them is good. I know that's taken from Final Fantasy Tactics, I think that idea. And then Sin is a good overall force. You know, we need to. It seems like an insurmountable force. You need to, uh, you know, need, need to take on at some point. So I think that works well in ten. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this that, that pretty much covers the the highlights, Matthew, for me. Mm. What about the worst Final Fantasy antagonist? This has to be uh, Shu Yin in Final Fantasy X too, who is kind of like. Tidus. It looks like Tidus from the past. There's like a whole like naff romance between these two characters in Zanakund a thousand years before that it sort of informs the story of Tentu and so Shuyin's just like Aldi Tidus basically. Yeah. So, Aldi Tidus. Just, just it did not work for me at all any of that romance from a thousand years ago shit. I think it's like really, really bad in Tentu, that story. So Chu Yin's the one here for sure, Matthew. But um, you know, my guy Seymour is a good antagonist in a way because he's like, you know, he he really riles you up and you want to kill him. But he is also quite quite a bad hang. So he's sort of like an honorary mention for Seymour here, I guess. Yes, wonderful. Our next question: uh, What is the best Final Fantasy spin-off? By default, this is probably the Final Fantasy Tactics series, right? It's you know, super credible tactics games, a different vibe, a little bit to mainline Final Fantasy, but just you know, really click with people and st- people still love those games years later mm. my personal pick though is obviously crisis core final fantasy 10 the story of zach pure 7 out of 10 game this but um story that really sticks in the memory so that's that's great and you know yeah. the theater rhythm games are cool as well as a kind of like musical tribute to the games um you know the, the version they've done this year the uh whatever the, is it called curtain call or something like that it's like a final version they've done of like um yes final yeah. final bar something like that so yeah yeah, that's cool. It's, They've done. It's got like nine hundred tracks in it. It's just unworkable at that level, <laughs> you know. Yeah, there's something where it goes beyond. Like, wow, that's thorough to like know too much. No, if you, <laughs> if you start at one and work your way forward, you'll never get past two. That's what I think because I you'll just, just be like done by then. So I yeah. also, uh, maybe this is maybe this is against the rules to say this, but I think if you put that much Final Fantasy music together, you begin to realise that maybe it's a little bit samey. Yeah, that's there's a bit of that, but you know they. This because these music, this music's meant to form like have have different purposes essentially. So I can sort of see how it how it happens, but uh, yes, okay. Next up, Matthew. What is your least favorite spin-off? And don't you say it, you motherfucker. <laughs> uh, I think it 
like it. It probably is that by. Di- well, no, actually, do you know what? No! I played a di- There's another Crystal Chronicles game I played on DS that's like worse than that one. Um, <laughs> what was it? There was the one that also was on Wii 2. Is it Echoes of Time? I think that's the one. It was like a yeah. cross play DS Wii one. Yeah. Yes, that one I did not like at all. It was like, yeah, just didn't just looked quite ugly. I thought, and the sort of like the the visual tech they took on DS was sort of semi successful. I would say it's not necessarily stood the test of time. Mm. So, yeah, that Echoes of Time I think is the one where I was like, I don't know who this is for. It doesn't really feel like Final Fantasy to me. I don't know why it's the same game on Wii and DS. That feels like a bad idea to me, given how different their capabilities are. But yeah, so. There you go, Matthew. I'll give it a stay of execution for your stay beloved, of execution um, for my bearers. beloved Crystal Bearers. Crystal Bearers, you can at least argue, is an interesting spin-off. You know, it's definitely interesting. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I wouldn't. I'd... I wouldn't give it like a fucking nine or whatever you gave it for <laughs> you know whoever. But yeah, it's just yeah. I think I gave it a five or a six, and that's fine. So yeah, okay. Yeah. Next up, Matthew. Uh, what is the best Final Fantasy mini game? It is Triple Triad, but Triple Triad is ruined by the random rule, as yeah. previously discussed on the podcast. So Triple Triad wins this by default, I think. And no, no, also runs. Uh, Blitzball is an also run, but people just seem to hate it too much, so it's yeah. you know it's tough. Uh, okay. You know, worse ones are like there's uh, there's like Blitzball in ten two is much worse than Blitzball in ten. That would be up there for me. But there's actually quite a few bad uh, mini games in that series. So uh, not, yeah, not, not a big Final Fantasy fifteen pinball downloadable app guy. <laughs> Did fifteen have some mini games? I it had like a pinball it table, and it, you could download it as a separate game. Yeah, I don't know. I just I engage with this stuff less and less. Does sixteen have any in it? No. Oh, that's interesting. I'd have, I'd it really that... like I sixteen has cutscenes and fighting and walking and nothing else. <laughs> Fair enough. Like okay. that is it. There's nothing else. Interesting. But that's uh, and that's maybe fine. Like what you played in the demo, that is it. That's good. So it's a good demo in the sense that it represents the entirety <laughs> yeah, like, of the experience. Yeah, it's very honest about what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Do you prefer Final Fantasy when it's more sci-fi or fantasy based? I think the series needs a mix of both to kind of keep things interesting personally. But mm. I do I do have a personal affection for the sci-fi side of things. I think when they heighten things and make them seem a bit bit weird and you know and just a bit high tech it, it kind of works. I think some of the stuff you see in 13 back set up how how extraordinary some of the more futuristic environments look and 7 as well is probably 7 sort of does sci-fi the best where Midgar just looks really sort of cool and weird and near futuristic mm. and quite different to other parts of the world so yeah i like a like a bit of sci-fi tinge to the, to these games but then when you kind of ground it a bit more like you do in um 16 and it's more muted i think that maybe unlocks different types of tones and storytelling so mm. yeah you know a bit of both matthew goes mm. a long way um what's the worst line of dialogue from any final fantasy game i think this would have to go to final fantasy 10 when tedus uh, they say that they're going to a place called makalania temple and then I think Tita says, I thought they said Macarena Temple, and then goes, I? Like that. And it's no. a ref- it, Yeah. And it's a reference to this, obviously, to the Macarena song. And There's it's a like Macarena the- reference in Final Fantasy X. <laughs> yes. Quite a famous one, or an infamous one, rather. And it's like so- <laughs> it's such a bad call. Just like a, t- a horror show of a decision by the localization so team. Much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even by 2001, like, who was still listening to the Macarena at that point? So, yeah, Macarena Temple, I that would be up there for me. That's it's bumpy. Bumpy ride, man. 
This is where I tell you that Final Fantasy 16 is full of I think you should leave memes. That's like the the show I do not click with that everyone else clicks with. And I'm like, <laughs> it's the internet's rough out there, man. The amount of people like posting memes from that show, like it's like good content. I'm like, fuck, fuck this shit. This is like the internet is dead to me now. It's like a wasteland. So I at least like get the, you know, we're all looking for the guy who did this one. That totally works as a kind of like modern age kind of, you know, sort of like meme you can apply to everyday life. But some of these other ones, man. I'm just like, ugh, I don't care about this computer screen gag or this guy in a car or whatever the fuck. I'm like, yeah, I get it. You, so, you know, you just... Final Fantasy what hilarious. is Clive's dad flopping out of a coffin. <laughs> okay, Actually, good. that we don't know who did this meme is quite relevant for several bits in Final Fantasy 16. <laughs> I'm surprised that you're a big I think you should leave guy because that I'm seems not, like the I'm sort of thing really. you would normally... I, the, yeah. I, each, each series has like one or two sketches where I'm like, this is really, really funny. It's often the ones with... The, is it Sam Richardson? He's, he's right. pouting. Like the baby of the year in the first season. But a lot of them is just man shouting and asking. Maybe I see too much of myself in it and I just find it embarrassing for that reason. <laughs> It's like, oh yeah, I would double down. It's a guy who like doubles down a lot. That's that's yeah. the joke. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's fair that it's like it's quite singular and people seem yeah. to really dig it. And fair enough, but yeah, just not for me. It's like the whole drill thing. I don't really get that either. You know, I get it. I get why people are laughing, but I'm like, it's just weird for the sake of it. I just whatever. You know, I'm <laughs> out on this stuff. So it's just like just a guy writing in lower case font something really bizarre and people are like oh my god that's so my vibe man i just can't be doing with it so yeah uh so many people have logged off now this podcast probably fucking love drill so yeah uh, what's next matthew what is the coolest super boss from the series so many good ones i do love a good super boss i.e not a character that, not a boss that's part of the main quest but something you have to go and find near the end of the game and I think this goes to Emerald Weapon from Final Fantasy VII, which is the underwater thing that swims around. And that's just, it's very bizarre. And like when you fight it in battle, it just destroys you with all these like absolutely brutal attacks, really difficult to unpick. But I like the idea you have to get in a submarine, go down and find this like, you know, <laughs> this sort of like aquatic monster to kill it, essentially. I think that works Ooh. really well as a bit of um, stage setting. But the Dark Aeons and Ten are cool because they're like, all your allies have turned into these evil fucked up monsters that you have to go and um, wipe out across the world so uh yeah they're like kind of horror horror style mm. enemies I, w- yeah. I wonder if they'll do those super bosses in the the final fantasy remakes yeah it's, it feels like they have to because the, the weapons are a part of the story they are right. unleashed to protect the planet basically that's the planet protecting itself so and you kill them what a dick move <laughs> yeah i sort of like do you yeah, yeah i guess you do i guess you do kill them because they're just i think the, the implication is they might kill everything if you don't but um right. they are extremely difficult to kill did you ever come across the desert one where it's like uh you see like a little red like tail or something sticking out and then this giant like red monster thing leaps out of the desert at you it's they're quite scary as as, as ideas go yeah <laughs> Last question there, Matthew. The last question. Which Final Fantasy game probably has the best story? Tough one to call this because, you know, there's a some of these stories are all over the place. But I think I think seven does kind of work as a story because it has the very sim- simple of an- angle of the the planet is about to be destroyed and there's nothing we can do to stop it, while also knowing that this one on one duel with Sephiroth is the, is the thing that you're building up to, like this final encounter. I think that I think that journey works. It's got the most kind of momentum to it. And it's apart from some of the Genova stuff being quite confusing. I think like the I think like the 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 Nibelheim flashback stuff is just so effective in this game too. It just gives you so much context for what's going on and 
why things are the way they are and then it fills in some gaps of cloud's memories later on in quite an effective way i found seven story quite easy to follow for the series so that's up there six would be up there as well six is like some six is just such a daring game in terms of some of the late late game twists it tries so yeah that's my answer to that one matthew that's it we've done it the final fantasy pod is over feels slightly anticlimactic now we've done it i was like i always knew this pod would happen and now it's happened i'm like that's probably like a probably like a seven out of ten episode for us oh but, you no, know it's it's good. i liked it yeah okay yeah we covered lots of ground we did yeah that's good it was like like i say my, i'm not like the biggest expert on this series but I, the bits i know i know really well so hopefully that came across well to the listeners and it was nice to hear your 16 insights well i enjoyed listening to it so thanks pal yeah that's, good. All, that's all that matters it's a series <laughs> i wish i played more of and that's largely down to hearing your enthusiasm for it like i'm definitely way more into the idea of it after doing this pod for a couple of years so oh good well i appreciate that man it's uh yeah i like i'm sure this series will come up again at some point maybe when we do a what we've been playing i can play some more of 16 and we can get yeah i'd like to detail. i'd like to go more into it because I, th- I think there's some really interesting stuff in there and i'd love to talk more openly about it and i'd love to hear your take so it's just it's just trying to cram in all of these big games that have launched at once at the moment it's just fucking yeah, yeah. i don't i don't even think i'm going to get to diablo before like the summer at this point so uh, yeah. or late I, summer so i will have played I will have played uh, Final Fantasy VII by the time the remake comes out. Okay. If only, if only for work, I have to be on top of this stuff now. So we'll definitely have a Final Fantasy VII episode closer to that. Sounds good to me, man. I'm always happy to talk about that game in more detail. Look at that, committing about... to 2024 content. Yikes! <laughs> <laughs> you see, you have to cram in Crisis Core as well, Matthew. You can probably leave um, Dirge of Cerberus. You can give that a miss, you know. But yeah, uh, Crisis, Crisis Core is Crisis Core is quite relevant to FF Seven Remake, is the thing. So right, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm afraid you've signed up to play fucking ninety hours of games now. So that's, that's fine. That's the castle yeah. way. <laughs> okay, good. Well, the podcast is over. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, it's Patreon.com/slash/BackpagePod, where you also get two extra podcasts a month at the XL tier. Matthew, where can people find you on social media? At Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. The Twitter feed is uh, Backpage Pod. There's also a Facebook page now that I've set up. So that's uh, if you just type in the Backpage Video Games Podcast on Facebook, you can follow us on there too. I'll probably replicate the Twitter content on there if you are on another decrepit, um, controversial social media platform. And uh, yep, you can also email us at backpagegames at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with uh, Two Giant Men Replay Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. So goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.